Hello and welcome to the next episode of the podcast. A cannabis podcast for budding enthusiasts. In this episode, we're joined by Jeremy from Builder Soil to chat all things organic growing. So buckle in for some awesome organic knowledge from the man himself. Um, so, first of all, this is the only time I'll ever do this. I just wanted to say this episode is actually dedicated to someone. It's dedicated to all of the growers out there who are thinking about maybe switching over, but maybe you use bottled nutrients at the moment and maybe it's a part of your income or you're just scared things will fall apart. Well, trust me, you know, listen to us and the world won't come grinding to a halt, I promise. So, before we get started, um, Jeremy, what's your favorite strain? Well, I don't know. I've been one of those types of growers that's been a, a seed hoarder and always looking to collect something. I get easily excited about crosses that I wasn't able to get and become available or a buddy that I respect their work made across. And so my garden has really been, um, I guess, complemented by organics because I can run many different cultivars, never having grown them before. And a lot of times um, they're all able to run on the same regimen. And that was attractive to me. So it's hard for me to pick a favorite. I grow a different flavor almost every time. Um, but one of those clone-only elites, there's several of them that are running around out there. And it seems like the glue has been one of those very consistent. Even if somebody doesn't do a great job growing it, it comes out smelling very similar, looking good. It has a ton of oil on it when you go to press it or if you're going to make a concentrate from it. And so that's one that I keep going back to right now in my garden. There's one that it's very unique, came from Canada, and it was a freebie. And it was uh, a a Jingai crossed with a blueberry kush. And the Jingai was a a really sought-after clone-only, white widow something. You know, I don't know the background on it. But this one in particular, really purple hair. And the odor is just unmistakably candy-like. And it's really, really stinky. So I'm hoping that it translates to taste. And I guess we'll find out. Awesome. So I think the first big question um, is... Why should people be growing organically over, say, bottled nutrients? It's a good question. For me, um, it was about congruency in the beginning before I knew a lot. And so I was already eating organic. I was already trying to remove processed foods. And I was being at least starting to be conscious about the carbon footprint involved in my lifestyle. And um, I'm a hypocrite in a lot of those areas because I'm not perfect, um, but I choose to make decisions in areas where I can easily make an impact. So started growing and had some success. But when I went to the grow shop, there was no organic options. I mentioned being congruent. I was already living a lifestyle that was more that that method. And so um, when I started growing and really got a little more serious about it in 2009, there was uh, a number of options available that were organic for the first time, like different bottled nutrients. And then there was the super soil which was by TGA, and there was, um, I'm not sure if that had come out yet or was about to come out, but the Revs True Living Organics. And so I was like, wow, look at all these different options. And so um, when I started researching more, I found out that there was actually a whole world where uh, people were concerned about our soil and how it's going to affect our society in the future, um, how it affects the nutrient density of the food that we eat and the disease that we can get. And so it started becoming, you know, more of just a translation of that healthy lifestyle. And then I found out how easy it was to grow organic, how it suited me, my ability to take weekends off and do things where I wasn't, you know, completely revolved around my grow. 
And then I also found out that yields could be good and that significantly um, different to my experience with hydroponics was that um, I could get the taste and the smell out of those genetics the first time I grew them instead of really trying to figure them out, if that makes sense. And so for me, it was just natural to want to grow organic. And it seems like most of our customers also want to grow organic. And then we can get into all the benefits behind that. But there's, there's too many to talk about depending on the angle. Do you have any more specific questions, I guess, about that? Well, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is starting builder soil. Was that just kind of a natural extension of that passion or was it more of like you saw there was a niche that needed filling? It was a little bit of both. Um, I'd been reading and dabbling a little bit in uh, internet businesses. I'd run a couple of businesses on my own in the past that were more brick and mortar. And I was disenchanted with the nine to five job routine and where I was at in life. I had a breakup of a relationship. I had some things happen in my life where I was kind of refocused on growing. And then my father passed away. And so when that happened, I took a look at my life and I was like, well, geez, I'm going to wake up in 30 years at the same job. I might as well you know, pursue some of these dreams. What am I waiting for? And so Build a Soil happened because I was having to source these ingredients that I was reading about on IC Mag and other organic grow forums. And I was having to source them from all over the country and all over the world, and it was really hard to get them. Sometimes I went without or waited a while, or I'd get a low-grade product. And so all the money I spent finding out all this information started to make an impact on some of my local friends, and they'd buy some of the products. And so that was kind of a way for me to buy more for myself. And then I thought, well, I'm going to try this. I built build a soil, and I posted a couple Craigslist ads, and I had some um, initial interest. And then from there, we didn't do any advertising. We just did word of mouth, and it went like crazy. So... Um, I'd say it was a passion for organics, but more than that, it was because like I mentioned before, I went to the hydro store and there was no options that were really organic. It was just these, um, kind of predatory wannabe organic companies with really high profit margins that were selling you products that were very similar to the current paradigm and it fit their model of keeping you back in the store all the time. And so, um, when I started build a soil, it was just a way to share what everybody knew in the organic forms, but it took them years to find out hoping to speed that process up and also hoping to make some money, which is, it's working out and I'm really happy about that. Yeah. Nice. Um, so I guess moving on to the big question, which I'm always trying to answer to people, why is bottled nutrients or for this interview, I'm going to call it synthetic. Why is synthetic cannabis different to organic? Like what are the fundamental factors, which, cause people always say organics better than synthetic. Well, let's explain to people what, what is it that makes the organic better? That's a good question. It, it crosses over a lot of different lines, whether, whether we're talking about setting up a grow and making it easy to do versus checking pH and all that stuff. It can definitely have its advantages, but I think most of us that get really passionate about this, there's some, a certain je ne sais quoi about the finished product that has more romance to it. It has a depth of flavor and taste. And it's, it's hard to explain because, um, for instance, um, I kind of, I kind of like to think of it culinarily. So if we were going to compare it to food or to cooking, most of what people are experiencing grown synthetically is akin to buying a uh, Campbell's soup or, or maybe like a Wolfgang puck or something a little higher end, but it's still a processed, synthetic, in a can, chelated version, so to speak. And so it's, it's ready to use. It provides value to the market. It certainly works the same every time. But if you were to ask a chef who spent his life visiting farms, tasting ingredients from regions, traveling the world, growing in seasons and putting that in their flavor, it's like it's not enough. And so 
ultimately in organics, if we can now grow some of our own inputs, make our own compost, build our own soil, or have somebody that we trust to do that for us, we start to connect all of the dots. And then you get those flavors and you get those nutrient profiles. And um, one of the things that's neat is just like wine, you find that there's a term called terroir. And it relates to the region in which the wine was grown, the temperature, the soil, and even with tobacco. You know, if you're going to buy a cigar, the soil is absolutely the most important part of that. And that's why people seek out Cuban cigars. So taking all of that in perspective, looking at soil as a bigger picture, it's like, well, geez, how is synthetics going to add up? Because it's all it's trying to do is duplicate soil. And then from there, it's trying to take out any of the potential problems when you're monocropping on scale indoors, which could be... Uh, bacteria, pathogens, yada, yada. So it's kind of like using hand sanitizer as opposed to just getting in the dirt and being healthy. So all in all, the organics just fits all of those different similarities in my life and makes a lot more sense to me. So so people often try to um, say essentially that um, organics is harder than synthetics. Um, what is your general thought on this idea? Do you think there's any truth to that or maybe people have got it a bit confused? I think it's a lot easier, but it is that is missed on a lot of people because if you go to research organics, you're going to get a variety of different information that can seem confusing. What's great is a lot of these people that you find with a million different methods are all having success in organics. And so I think the difference is in perception. If I go to the grocery store, they're going to give me a neat little printout with a couple lines on it that say, add these ingredients on this day at this time. And for a beginner, that's really nice to have a recipe. It's just like opening up a cookbook and measuring every single item to put it in the bowl. But once you get a little better at this, um, you don't need the cookbook. It's significantly easier. You know ratios. You throw things together, and they work. That can be very scary for someone who's new to this, who has no mentor, who has nobody to hold their hand. And so I think that it's just kind of a misconception. Organics is so much easier that it's hard to give a precise recipe. Um, where that's very easy in synthetics. You just tell people exactly what to do. The thing is, is when people get down the line in synthetics and they're growing a lot of plants, they realize that it's not that simple. Most of the manufacturers mislabel. You have to cut the dosages in half. You have to make certain changes to make things work. And so I don't think organic's any different. It's just to where you're going to invest your time. And kind of like switching from skiing to snowboarding or surfing to bodyboarding, it's just different skills. And so if you're an advanced expert in one area, it's going to make you feel kind of like a beginner to try organics. But I feel like the learning curve is a lot easier, and certainly um, the ability to lose a crop in hydro can happen overnight, where in organics, I think even a beginner is going to get to harvest. So, Yeah. So, I mean, kind of touching on something you said earlier, <clears throat> in relation to organic food, it's it, there's little debate. You know, Everyone would prefer organic food if they had the choice. So why is it that people go to hydro over organic as, say, their first choice? You know, like it would seem to me like it would be the thing people would first want to do, but a lot of people don't. It, it, you know, it, often you hear people saying, oh, I did hydro first and now I'm organic. Yeah, I don't know why that is. I think that it's a system of the marketing machine that existed. You know, you have a lot of the magazines that target a core demographic of teenagers to early 20s. You go to the store that's fueled by repetitive sales with high margins that are on the same products. And so when you're not allowed to ask for help, ask anybody, things are illegal. All you can listen to is the people that are selling you the products. Not only that, but it's coupled by a few different things. When you look at the history of cannabis, um, you can read a few different posts, but DJ Short has a great one. And it's talking about how um, in the 90s, there was this perfect storm of hydroponic nutrients and lights that were available at stores. And coupled by the fact that people figured out how to grow hybrid plants that grew shorter and had higher yield and worked indoors, 
And that was all a consequence of the war on drugs, going indoors and forcing people to do that at a, at a larger scale. So um, when you have that happening, you just have a lot of things that are changed in that process and are forced to have happen. Um, so I, I think that's kind of a key difference there, if that makes sense. Yeah. So here's kind of a bit of a nuts and bolts question. Can organic ever yield more or equal to synthetic? You know, this is the major argument presented by everybody in the hydroponic industry. Do you think there's any proof behind this or do you think we've moved past those days where it's just commonly accepted that hydro will always out-yield organic? And sorry, and as know, a bit of, sorry, sorry, as yep. a follow-up, um, if hydro does out-yield organic, do you think the cost reduction... Cause Often hydroponic weed doesn't go for as much as organic. Do you think the cost reduction in selling price is worth the cost savings or any potential savings in, say, yield increase? Yeah, it's so it's so strange because there's there's not enough data on on a real large scale. We're talking five year data by real companies. There is when we're talking farming. So when we're looking at agriculture, there's a lot of data. When we're looking at horticulture, specifically cannabis. There isn't as much data, and I know a lot of my friends can claim some pretty significant yields using hydroponic techniques. The thing is, is we also want to look at yields 24-7, 365, including problem gardens, crops that are failures. We also want to look at energy usage. We want to look at the profit margin, not just the yield that's produced. And so I think that um, when we start to consider that, I'm finding my greenhouse customers that are using the sunlight with supplemental lighting are drastically increasing their profit margin by keeping the same soil around and learning to soil test, top dress, and amend. And we're all, we're all learning right now. Even you know me, I'm learning every day about how to improve these soil mixes. So the it, it's crazy because some people will get hydro that will actually go for a higher dollar amount based on the bag appeal. Just like how you can go to a shop a store and get a tomato that looks perfect but tastes like nothing. Hydroponics can make a beautiful product, no doubt about that. It's it's the punch behind that, the power, the lasting effect, the taste, the flavor. All of those secondary effects that organics typically has from the nutrient density. Now, some of these hydroponic guys are getting a little better by incorporating organics into their synthetics and starting to bring some of that back. And so when we're looking at indoor, um, duplicating a grow and having someone who's never grown before, hydroponics has, has a few legs up on systematizing. But once you get growers that are really good at their craft and good at organics, we're finding a higher sellable pro- product like you're finding because it smells better and looks better. And then we're finding that um, the profit margin's there. And so one of the reports that I'd encourage people to look at is going to the um, 30 to 35 year, I believe now, Rodale Organic Farms Trial Study. And what you'll find is that when they compare synthetic versus or conventional versus organic, when they compare also no-till conventional versus no-till organic versus some of these other hybrid methods, organic just wins across the board Every single time, um, you know, when it comes to bumper crop years where the weather's great, uh, they both are neck and neck. When it comes to drought years, organic just crushes it. When it comes to uh, bushels per acre, organics is winning. When it comes to the price per uh, actual profit margin, there's less cost in inputs in the organics, and they actually Powering do, off. like you said, uh, <laughs> command a, uh, a higher uh, price at the market. So they're widening the profit margin, uh, both at the front and the back. And that's really appealing because that's a 30-plus year study on an agricultural level, which is where we should be heading as the laws change. I don't think we're going to be forced to be indoors. At least we'll be in greenhouses um, as things loosen up a little bit more and we can get those profit margins there and get more medicine produced, if that makes sense. Yeah. So 
I mean, maybe this is a bit of a no-brainer, but um, in the ideal world, would everyone be growing organic in your, you know, in your ideal world? Yeah, of course, in my ideal world. But I think that I think that there's always, like, for instance, how do you know how good it feels to be healthy unless you've been sick? There's always this yin and yang. And so if I just saw that the mainstream majority understood that organic wasn't witchcraft and that it wasn't you know, something that will never work, I think I'd be really happy with that. And people can make their own intelligent decisions. But you know, certainly having 5,000% markup on little bottles with liquid in them, I think that that's going to end pretty quickly as consumers get more educated. So that will be phased out. Next is going to be you know, looking at actual scale, like for instance, the hemp farms that we visit out here. It's different. You know, we're not going to recommend 30% compost. They can't spend, you know, 400 truckloads across an acre to do that. And so we've got to start to consider different methods that are going to create new opportunities for business and new challenges for growers because right now on scale, that's the really big challenge is how do we do organics on a farm that has been synthetic for a long time and do that conversion and successfully train people to convert, learn the new skills, spend the money that it takes to ramp up. And that's essentially what it's like for most every single grow because every grow, grower that I work with, unless it's a brand new facility, is switching from hydro to organic. Um, when they're brand new and they have an organic grower, I see a higher success rate. It's a lot harder to change over for you know keeping the same grower and the same same mindset. So, yeah. So let's talk about that process of rejuvenating soil. So, um, if you have had soil that's been used for synthetic nutrients for an extended period of time. It's obviously going to have a large amount of salt built up and virtually no microbes in it. What would be your, you know, kind of first uh, guess as to how to rejuvenate it? Would you be looking at using, you know, adding humus through some means and then trying to get some microbes back in there? Or is it a much more complex process? Because this kind of crosses over into, you know, like how would people, you know, reuse some of their cocoa to make their new soil mix if they're going organic? Yep, yep. Um there's a few different ways and it really depends on your time frame. So in farming, they call it leaching instead of flushing. And you could certainly do a flushing if it's just a small amount of cocoa medium and get the salts out. And they sell products that are good at doing that. And they sell enzyme products that eat the salts. Um, on the agricultural scale, people have been using the product by Terraganics, the EM1. It's a probiotic. It's kind of one of the originals. It has purple non-sulfur bacteria, lactobacillus, and yeast. And you can make something that's a part of that at home on your own. And some of these have been proven to remediate toxic soils and help with salts. So I would do specific research based on my area, what type of salts I'm dealing with. Um, but, but definitely there are ways to do it. Um, I really recommend when people are considering doing that, if they've got just a small investment and in some synthetic medium, maybe using that out, outside in a garden or something and starting from, the, from scratch to start their organic process. And it's not that I think that it's 100% necessary, but when you're trying to troubleshoot later on, I hate that there's a variable there of wondering, is it really some leftover salts or something that I messed up from trying to recycle this soil that I probably shouldn't have? And so to make it just really clear cut and keep your variables to a minimum, I think starting from a base recipe is, is advisable. Otherwise, flush it with just water. Um, you could add some sulfur. That's how they do it on the agricultural level, and that um, leaches some of the potential excess cations. And we can talk about that. Um, you could also use some gypsum, and that would replace any of the ones that it's flushing out with calcium. Um, so I guess it's a case-by-case. Case. Yeah. Okay. So kind of following in that same vein, what is the best way to increase the general humic content of your soil? Because a lot of the times when I see people 
and they tell me, you know, oh, this, this soil is depleted, there's nothing in it. Often what rings in my head is like, no, you've just got no humic content in that soil. So do you think yep. that, <clears throat> I guess this question that kind of the underlying of it is like no-till versus general recycling. Should you be looking to continually just top dressing your soil with things like compost and, you know, eventually the humic content will kind of leach back in? Or should you be looking to full-on pull your soil out, compost it with some rich humic ingredients for a few months and then bring it back in, so to speak? You know, I, I don't think that we should ever be recycling and dumping and reamending and all that, at least from an idealist perspective. If we were to scale it up, it's got to be scalable. And dumping, reamending is certainly a lot of labor when you start looking at acreage and greenhouses and, and anything bigger than a, you know your own closet. Now, at home, if you, I guess the reason why people do it as far as starting from scratch each time and throwing all of their stuff away would be because it's a reset and they can guarantee the starting point. And so then from there, we started recycling and it worked. From there, we can also do soil testing recycling and that works. But when we started to, to learn or when I started to learn more about how plants and nature work, the biomimicry portion, you start to look at all of the compost that comes from the leaves and from all the stuff on top. It's never mixed in unless it's brought down by animals. And so the no-till crowd uses worms and over time you continually can lessen your inputs because there's a nutrient cycling that starts to happen. But in the beginning, I would prefer to top dress it. And so I've got a story um, out back in my at my property. I had some really bad soil. It's very clay out here, really high in calcareous and alkaline. And so it's very similar. You want to add a lot of organic matter um, to start to get it to work properly. And so I was considering tilling down and doing a ton of work. And I decided to get a very affordable truckload of compost that wasn't even finished yet, more like wood chips, brought it in and dumped it down. And I raised the soil up about six inches using that. And then in the areas I wanted to plant plants, I just put a little potting soil and dug out a couple gallon hole and put the plant. And that first year, everything was successful. But the second year, it had almost completely turned into soil and built the soil up instead of digging it down. So I think I saved a lot of money and saved a lot of effort doing it that way. And then indoors when you're growing or when you're growing in beds, um, Adding the worms in the container can certainly help so you don't have to add so much that it adds to the volume of your bed. But all of the biomass that we are taking out um, should be added back in and there should be a little extra. And so whether that's adding a cup of this, a cup of that as far as dry amendments or adding compost back, I think those are the, I think those are the easiest way to go. Meaning when you add it to the top, there's a lot less risk of it being out of balance and it hurting the plant. But when you start to mix it in, you better be balanced. And so that's why we make a potting soil that tries to follow the major cations in balance. And we're now working on all of the micronutrients. But from there, after a cycle or two without doing a soil test, it seems to be a lot easier just to top dress and, and keep it just so it has a, a, a bigger savings account than it needs and things go really well. Yeah. So would your general philosophy on how to get the most out of your soil be that essentially you try to maximize the cationic exchange capacity or not specifically? Yes, you want to have a good balance between cation exchange capacity and the organic matter content. And it's, they go kind of in opposite directions. The more clay you get, the, the more cation exchange you can have, the more um, actual you know, exchange sites there are. And then when you go the opposite direction and add a lot more organic matter, sometimes you lower that a little bit and you complex a lot of the nutrients. It's a little bit harder to read. So um, to get the most out of the soil, we want a generous amount of organic matter, 
it's going to hold moisture and it's going to have all of those complex organic nutrients in it. But we also want to have the cation exchange at a decent level. And what I've found recently is that our liming agents can actually artificially increase the cation exchange. And what that means is there's calcium that's free floating around that hasn't been adsorbed into the cation exchange sites yet. And the soil tests falsely read that as a higher cation exchange. And um, we just did a soil test recently. In fact, I got it here in front of me. And we did a uh, Malik 3 soil test through Logan Labs, and it came in at 32.52 cation exchange capacity or the total exchange capacity. And that's pretty good. We'd like to see something, you know, in the 20s or 30s. That's really high. Certainly, we don't want to be below 10. That's more like a field soil. When we did the um, ammonium acetate 8.2 alkaline type test on it, it dissolved out a lot of that excess calcium and showed us where our exchange capacity was actually at 18.71. That makes sense because our organic matter is at 43% on this recipe, which is really high. And so to get that exchange capacity higher, you could have a little less organic matter, maybe add some more clays and things like that. But in any case, here's what happens. If you have a really low exchange capacity, you're going to have to supplement your full season plant with a lot of input nutrients. And so if your soil is not quite as balanced, that might actually benefit you because you'll exhaust through things faster and you can control it by using teas. I don't like to use a ton of teas. And so I want to have a lot higher exchange capacity and really properly balance these nutrients. That way you have to basically just add water. And so uh, to get the most out of your soil, the higher CEC will hold more nutrients. But I think that at that point, the balance of those nutrients is going to be a little more important. Yeah. So that question for me, it kind of relates to like super soil versus a coots mix, you know, like on the one hand, yep. when I look at the super soil, yeah, it's like that, that organic heavy and the, uh, the exchange capacity is not as good. Whereas coots is the opposite, you know, like using what is there yep. more efficiently do you think that that should yep. be our general approach to all organics? Like let's use less amendments and get more out of them? Yeah, I think so, especially when it comes to economies of scale. We're going to have to learn how to work with the microorganisms that are able to break these down. For instance, phosphorus is very immobile. It's always been a problem for farmer and consequently always been a problem for groundwater too. And it's going to bind and lock up and it's not going to be available where in organics, nature finds a way. Even at you know, pHs that shouldn't be available, they're able to exchange differently, pick up nutrients in different fashions. And so um, when I look at a super soil, a lot of times there's the margin for error was where you'd hit a hot pocket and not be able to undo it. So my opinion is that starting with a really good balance, you can always add more to it in the areas in which your environment or genetics or whatever might require that. But if you start off just tripling and doubling all the nutrients to try and power it and just really push them hard, you could end up finding cultivars that don't like that or imbalance within the input recipes that made that batch each time. And then from there, it's very hard to recycle a really hot soil like that. Even if you did nail it the first round, very hard to get it right the second round without throwing it away and starting over. So having a balanced soil with a known recipe that people can duplicate allows us to create this and then if we have to, like I said, add to it by top dressing. And to me, that just seems like there's more power in that. There's more control in that. And if we're trying to get more people to grow organically, they're going to have more success doing it that way. Yeah. So if people were growing with super soil and they're of the opinion that they've now depleted it, do you think it's the case that there probably is still a fair amount of nutrients in there? And if, say, they amended it with maybe some peat or some cocoa, that might kind of uh, change the exchange capacity a bit to uh, 
you know, you know, to make some of those nutrients more available? Yeah. Or do you think, no, yeah. you should probably just start over? No, it can totally work. I've seen people take it. And um, one of the benefits is a lot of these guys are flushing really hard. And it does strip out a lot of their nutrients. And so it's not as bad as you think. In fact, we're worried about sodium excess. But when I test soils that are, you know, super soils and have um, been flushed uh, at the end because that's their protocol, I'm not seeing sodium buildup because they're not using liquid nutrients. And so that's fine. What I typically see is that their phosphorus and potassium is still just in excess, more so than they think. And then the calcium and magnesium is not quite supporting, which should be you know the more major cations. And so it's hard to tell exactly what's going on when they plant back into it. And then they're adding more of the wrong things. So um, I wouldn't know if we took super soil and did a soil test, we could look at it, balance it pretty easily. If I was just going to shoot from the hip, I would say cut it in half with some peat and some compost and aeration to make sure that the texture's right, plant into it, then you could top dress from there and I bet you'd work perfectly. It'll it'll have it'll have excess P and K and probably a little low calcium and nitrogen. And so when you cut it in half, it'll cut that P and K where it needs to be. And then the top dressing is where you'll fix the rest. So if you were a good grower, you could certainly cut it and then judge on the plant. If this is your first time, you had a good lunk with super soil and you're hoping to use it, you might want to send off for a soil sample and see where you're at if that's easy. Um, where I live, it's 25 bucks, and you get a really good report. Um, there's also – I can go down to the local uh, college extension office and actually get a free soil test. So if you have those resources, I'd totally use them. Um, where you're at, another great person to talk to would be uh, Steve Solomon. I'm not sure if he's available for consulting, but I know that um, his book, uh, The Ideal Soil – I'm sorry um, – that's funny. I mixed the two up. Uh, I'm also thinking of Michael Estera, the ideal soil. And then Steve Solomon is the intelligent gardener. Those two really talk about um, soil mineral balancing. And so that would be worth looking into and maybe grabbing a copy of those. Yeah, for sure. So I was just going to say, I have to admit, I actually use blood and bone in my soil mixtures. And it's only been recently that I've been reading more and more about how the uh, the salt levels can start to really build up. How detrimental do you think it is to use blood and bone um, and the salt that's in it versus, say, another amendment that would, say, replace blood and bone. Do you think it's – because I see that more and more people are kind of urging us to move away from it, and I'm all fine with that, but I was just wondering, is it actually that detrimental or is it more of like uh, people don't agree with the methods in which blood and bone is produced more I, I think more it's so. more than methods. I, think it's, I don't think it's that bad as far as the actual salt. You could certainly get some batches that are a little saltier, but I mean, we're talking fish bone meal and kelp. We get sodium with those as well. And if we make a proper soil, a lot of times we could use a little sodium. Um, and I don't think that's really going to be detrimental. I have seen soils where that's hot. Where I focus on this is like in the kitchen, if I'm going to use an ingredient, I'd like it to be a multitasker. Like I don't need to get a watermelon cutting knife. I've got a great knife that'll cut anything. And so if I'm going to buy a soil amendment, I'd like it to be just like in nature, very well balanced. So um, seed meals and kelp has every mineral, um, you know, things that have a good NPK. Where you look at blood meal, it's it's just basically N. And then you take a step further from that and you realize that it's basically corn. Um, We're feeding the cattle corn, which we shouldn't be. They should be eating grass. Uh, Monsanto, GMO, Roundup sprayed crops going through the process. It's one of the worst industries there is. I know there's only a few meat packers out there. And so we're getting all the blood from those sources. And then it's stamped organic, which most people, I think if you asked them and they bought organic blood meal, they would expect that to come from an organic cow. And that's just not the case. And so um, in an effort to not support that, I've not sold any of those products and and we'll, we'll continue to not offer them. 
Um, and then from the perspective of let's say they were actually good. It was your cow. It had a great diet and you got the blood from it. I'd be all for using it and I don't really see a downside. So I think it's more about the methods. And then from there, it is a little one-sided. It is just the N or it is just the P. And so that is good sometimes when you're reading a soil test and you only need one ingredient. Sometimes the challenge with organics is a lot of your ingredients comes with multiple variables. And so when you read a soil test, you have to see how each variable is changed. Like for instance, if I need calcium, but my sulfur is too high, I can't use gypsum because that brings a lot of sulfur. So there is a place for these unitasking ingredients, but once you get there, it becomes about the source and who it's supporting, et cetera, et cetera. So. Yeah. So when we deal with this, I call it the minefield of organics because you've got all these products which maybe are labeled organic but under the hood maybe aren't. So I think the best example is a lot of the bottled nutrients which are stamped with organic, yet I have to explain they're not. Um, how do you, you know, how do you straddle this kind of dichotomy of where the chemistry nomenclature already exists saying that anything with a carbon backbone is organic and therefore some people will claim that certain synthetics are organic based on that viewpoint. While in the gardening world, you know, the term organic almost has a completely different meaning. You know, how, how do you deal with this? Um, you have to deal with it by getting educated and setting some core values for yourself and keeping that as your focus point. And what I mean by that is even in the organic world, some people would say that gypsum is not organic because it's not uh, a, a carbonate. It is uh, calcium and sulfur. It's a mined mineral. But to me, if it's dug out of the ground, that's great. I like it. It's natural. It's out, it's out there. It helps grow plants. And so there's always this um, duality that exists on both sides of the fence where a very intelligent uh, hydroponic grower can explain that organic nutrients are broken down to these chemistry nutrients at the end of the process anyway. So why not just cut the chase? And so to me, it always ends up coming around where I, I think that if you don't use it, you lose it. And we're certainly losing our soil and we haven't been using it. It's, it's like if you were to take a person, put them in an IV diet that was supposedly the perfect nutrition, I guarantee you they'd lose their teeth, their stomach, all the stuff that was not processing the nutrients and it would be very strange. But um, it, equally hard to get that perfect diet when you're just feeding them food. But I think we'd all agree growing your own food and eating holistically would probably be the best way to live a long life. So um, it's just, it's strange. These organic minefield, like you say, you have to get educated, start asking questions, just like when you go to the store and you start, instead of looking for calories and fat, you start to look, is this real food or is it fake food? And so in the organic industry, you just got to do the same thing. And I think when you apply that logic, it becomes easy. You know, you're like, huh, where's blood meal come from? I wonder if it's organic cows. You Google it and you find out it's not. Um, with guano, it's a little more interesting. You have a lot of organic growers still using guano, and I, I can't really hold them accountable to some you know perfect ideal because my reasons are different. I don't want my my crew to breathe it in. I think it's expensive for what it brings to the table. And historically, organically, when guano was the only nutrient, we overmined it, and it did cause a lot of problems. So there's going to be a different reason for a lot of these organic materials, and I don't want people to kind of lose sleep over it. You just have to kind of pick your area of comfort and go for that. Um, meaning I know a lot of people that compost non-organic produce and, and some people would just think that's in, insane, but I trust composting and I know how it's able to rip molecules down to their basic, you know, um, building blocks. So each person is going to have a different answer for this. Yeah, of course. And funnily enough, you, you kind of hit one of my later questions on the head. 
I um I use a lot of gypsum in my soil mix and cut out a chunk of oyster shell flour and I get it. some people give me a bit of flack for that and I try to explain to them that like even though the gypsum isn't organic because as you mentioned they bring up oh, it's not organic and you know yada 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 I guess in the end what I'm saying is do you think that it's really do you think it's really worthwhile for people to go and look into those elements a bit harder so that they can as you said you know make that distinction between well sure gypsum is not organic but i can use it and you know sure epsom salts aren't organic but foliar feeding with it isn't gonna you know kill my plants overnight i think it's important for us to all go through these things on our own and a lot of times in organic gardening it's important to learn these lessons one by one and going through that in our garden and answering them for ourselves because that's Unfortunately, one of the only ways to do this, but what's great is if you have a vegetable garden and a cannabis garden, you can try a lot of different different experiments. Um, but like you said, with gypsum, I just don't have any problem with that. Some people will, and there's no way you can convince them otherwise. But um, to me, I mean, there's a town in Colorado called Gypsum. It's laying out there in the ground. And so it, 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 that's just okay to me. But here's the thing. Let's say we scale up big time. How much gypsum is there? So one of the things people think about uh, or they purchase is perlite. What a lot of people don't know is that perlite is an obsidian rock and there's not an endless supply of it and it takes a ton of energy to transform it from this black rock into an, like a puffed up piece of popcorn that turns white and is really fluffy and is, it is great material for gardening. That's why we don't use it but um, when you start to look into organics and you get to deeper levels, it not only becomes is it organic and will it work but how sustainable is that? Like cocoa core, the argument is is more sustainable than pea moss. But the PMOS society would argue that we've only used a very small percentage and they're replanting and yada, yada, yada. Whereas people against coconut will say, well, they're planting plantations of coconut trees. They're using synthetic nutrients. So now you have to find out, is it organic or is it synthetic? Is it near the ocean where it's salty? Are they shipping it over on an oil tanker? It just becomes insane. And so the only answer if you're a purist is to get back to permaculture close the loop and have it all coming from your property. But to ramp up, you still have to bring in outside sources, cover crop, uh, organic material, animals. And then from there, you can start to close that loop. So you have to ask yourself, do I want to make all my own inputs, close my loop, have my own animals, make my own compost? Or am I okay digging in the ground on someone else's property to get a few of my resources? And I think that if it came down to actually producing food for us to eat, we'd all be okay using some gypsum. When it comes down to three plants in a closet, we can afford to have some really high ideals, and I'm okay with that. But uh, applying those to everybody isn't – I found in the beginning when you're first learning, you want to hold everybody you know, kind of – there's this organic elitist thought, and people kind of get in this trap where they have to justify their process by kind of being condescending. And I think once you start to learn a lot more about it, there's uh, – that goes away, and you just kind of focus on your own garden and teaching those that are willing to learn. Yeah. So, I mean, just touching on that point about the um, cocoa, in Australia, for example, cocoa is readily abundant because, you know, we're close to lots of small islands that produce a lot of coconuts. Um, yeah. However, however, peat moss is very, very expensive. Uh, it's, it's, you know, five, six times the price. Yeah. Um, it makes no sense to use peat moss where you're at, right? Yeah, I mean, so that was going to be the question is, are they, are they pretty interchangeable? They're not really uh, – I want to say yes. Um, but I think that they're not 100% interchangeable in the, in the idea that if both of those were available to you at the same price and they had no environmental impact and they were just perfect to use, we'd still be able to divide that lineup a little bit. And so peat moss, 
typically when we get it fresh from the bog is going to have fulvic and humic acids. It's going to have some um, indigenous bacteria. It's not going to have to be washed and rinsed and sat out for a couple of years. And it's going to be uh, a higher cation exchange capacity. It'll hold more nutrients. Um, I mean, there's a reason why peat moss is so widely used and why garden like uh, greenhouses that have you know millions on the line still use it even in the presence of coconut core being viable and rice holes being viable and all these other options. So <clears throat> I think that peat moss has a little bit of a leg up. But if I was forced to, I certainly think I could grow with coconut core in our soil recipe. And if I was forced to go without both, I think I could by making a compost that was not quite as nutrient dense and cutting that with maybe 50% aeration. And then from there, adding my starting materials. Uh, you could use aged manure that was fairly devoid of nutrients that's been rinsed out, rained on, and that would be kind of like peat moss. So ultimately, if I didn't have them, I could, I could do it. And for you being out there, I probably would avoid even starting to learn about peat moss as my soil recipe because it sounds like it's cost prohibitive and it's definitely going to have a big environmental impact. So, Yeah, that was actually the other thing I was going to bring up is that um – yeah, we, we don't produce a lot of it here, so that was one of the reasons I'd heard why it was so expensive. If I lived there, I'd be doing a side-by-side just to satisfy my curiosity, and I'd import some peat moss, and I would attempt to get my local recipe to match and mirror that and then exceed that because my natural curiosity, even if I made the best recipe ever, I would probably say, dang, but I wonder what if. And yeah. so if you can get over that, I think that you'll be fine, but if you really have to try it, do it. Other than that, I would say locally just – you know, try and work with it. Now, uh, if you start reading on coconut core, you'll find a little bit of difference. Um, one of the things I found, we sent a recipe off that was half peat moss, half coconut core as the portion of the base we use that for. And the soil test came back very similar, a little lower CEC, a little bit different, a couple numbers, but it was almost interchangeable. So I, I would say with confidence that as long as you can balance the calcium and potassium and all that stuff and have a little bit of thought to the salts that might be in that coconut core and really wash it, I don't think you'll have any issues. Fantastic. So for someone who's currently running synthetics and wants to switch over to organic, what would you suggest is the best way to convert? So maybe not necessarily talking about like soil mixes quite yet, but if they wanted to convert, would you say, look, you know, just just go all out, just, you know, switch all hydro, all organic? Or would you say, no, let's just do like maybe a few buckets organic and get the hang of it and then slowly switch over? Or how would you recommend they, they switch from one to the other? That's a tough question. Um, from an, a large-scale agricultural perspective and from business perspective, it's always advisable to just do a small test and then go from there. But I'm always of the thought that when you stand on the fence and you're in the middle, you get shot from both sides and it's really – advisable sometimes to burn your bridge, put all your efforts, double down and know that's what you're going to do no matter what. And a lot of people that are going to organics, that's their mentality. They're not going to retreat. They're not going to do hydro. That's not their mindset. That's all they want to do. But for people who really don't have a emotional investment in this, you just say, hey, whatever's better. I don't care if it's hydro and, and synthetic and has chemicals or if it's organic. I just want to grow what fits my lifestyle and works for me. Um, I think that the easiest setup for someone like that is going to be looking at what they're comparing it to. And I know a lot of the hydro guys can get just crazy with the number of nutrients they get into. So then their personality is going to come into play. Some guys find organic so easy, it drives them crazy. They're always looking for extra things to do. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I guess circling back around to your question about what's the easiest way to start. We have two methods that we share at Build-A-Soil and one of them for a beginner. Um, 
if they have an earth box, which is basically a sub-irrigated planter, it's a plastic growing container that has uh, the water that's held underneath the soil, and it's held up by a tray. And above that's just soil. The plant grows in it like normal, but once it hits the bottom, instead of just hitting the fabric pot, it digs into a reservoir of, wa- of water. And this eliminates the watering factor, which a lot of times somebody uh, moving over to organics is going to underwater or overwater, and that's going to be their steepest learning curve. And so that's a great way to mitigate that. Now, prior to me using earth boxes, I would have said earth boxes are stupid and I'd never use it. I only used the fabric grow pots or plastic grow pots. And the fabric were my favorite. And as long as you use a little bit of mulch on top and you start to, um, sometimes people like in a 15 gallon will put a tray underneath and you can water from the top and also pour a little water in the tray to help it wick up and water from the bottom. Um, There's a few ways you can, take that with a pretty easy learning curve. We have a moisture meter that'll allow you to probe into the soil and find out if it's dry or wet. And that'll help a first time grower to determine if they're over or under watering. But certainly what we hear about all the time when they're going to a big bed of soil to make it easier to get a large yield, we find the first thing they have a problem with is how much water to add. And the rule of thumb on large scale has always been, um, what I've always heard from people is said, Hey, if you have a 100-gallon pot, you're going to add 10 gallons. It's a 10% rule. If you have a 10-gallon pot, you'll water a gallon every time. But that doesn't always translate in organics because it's going to be dependent upon your humidity um, you know, and a lot of other factors. So I yeah. guess you know, the easiest way is either a fabric grow container or that earth box. And then my favorite is a large, large grow bed. But most people that are willing to just try out organics don't want to put a couple hundred gallons of soil in their bedroom and not have the ability to move it around on a whim. So, Yeah. So funnily enough, um, i got a friend who was in a similar situation. So he's just switched over to organics and um, now he's in, I suspect he's overwatered a bit and he's now got a lot of bugs as a result. What would be your recommendations for someone who's just switched over? I've actually got a few friends in this position and they've just switched to organics and because they've been using some of those hydroponic principles, you know, like obviously cocoa absorbs a lot more water than soil so people naturally overwater, I find. Um, what would be your advice to them um, in terms of getting rid of the bugs? Because I've got a lot of friends who are kind of at wits and trying to deal with these bugs and they, that's kind of the biggest downside they find coming from synthetics. Interesting to me because when you get bugs in, in uh, synthetics, it's, it's game over. In organics, you know, there's a lot that can happen before it really takes your crop down. And so it's depending on how you look at it. Of course, somebody that's used to visioning a white lab coat in a sterile room is going to have a hard time looking at soil that has bugs moving around in it. But most of the bugs we find in the soil are beneficial. And if they're a fast-moving mite, usually it's a soil mite, and they're assisting in um, that whole ecosystem. And so a lot of times, it's just a false thought. Hey, is the plant growing great? Yes, it is. Don't worry about it. Of course, if you've got fungus gnats, if you've got um, actual uh, spider mites or russet mites or you know all these problems we hear about, those are specific problems that you're going to need to address. Fungus gnats seems to come up as a really common pest that doesn't seem to do a lot of damage, yeah. but it's really annoying. What would be your it's recommendation annoying. for getting rid of it? It's really coming up as a problem. Um, with a lot of our customers as well. It can become a problem in hydroponics and it can really be detrimental because they eat the organic matter. So if you're growing in rock wool on slabs and you get fungus gnats, it could decimate your grow. In organics, it's more of an annoyance and it can be very, very annoying. And of course, it can get into your flowers and stick there and it could 
you know, hit you in the face when you open the tent or go to look in your grow. And so uh, a few things we can do. Um, one of the least expensive portions of our grow is the mulch layer. And a lot of guys are having a really thick mulch layer with a lot of decaying organic matter that fungus gnats love. And so until this soil in a no-till system ramps up to a full ecosystem where there are rove beetles and there are predator mites and there's all these things happening that balance that, you'll notice things come in, in booms. And so a huge fungus gnat population, you could just leave it on its own and probably in the next six months to a year, maybe a few months, it's going to go away. Something else is going to come in and eat it and it'll all balance out. But we can't just sit around and wait. It ruins crops. It has problems. So we can remove our complete mulch layer, throw it in the trash, remove it from the room. That will remove a lot of the larva. Uh, then from there, you can sprinkle some neem cake down. If you don't have access to neem, you can use some insect frass. If you don't have access to that, you don't have to use any of these ingredients. You can create a barrier with the next step, and that's to put – I like to use a premium compost or vermicompost and put about an inch layer up to two inches as a barrier covering all of the soil that would have previously been infested. And something about the beneficial, the probiotics, the organisms that are in that compost or in that uh, uh, worm castings, the vermicompost, it smothers them out and it really wipes out a big majority of them. So you're back down into maintenance mode instead of um, you know a huge eradication effort. And then from there, uh, don't water immediately. Keep it dry so that the adults can't immediately lay eggs in the top. And you can put some sticky traps to start to kill them um, while you're smothering the uh, you know larva below. And that works really, really well. What I like to do is do all of that, but at the exact same time, uh, once I remove the mulch layer to get the soil really wet so that I can avoid watering the top for a day or two, um, I like to get uh, nematodes, predator nematodes. I'm not sure if they're available in Australia, but we have a number of insectaries out here. And I use Arbico Organics, and we have a couple others. But I order one that's specifically for fungus gnats, and you water it into the soil, and they eat all the larvae, and they really knock them down within the first week. And then you can also get Hypoapsis miles predator mites, and those should be you know, coming already in your worm castings if you're getting them fresh. But you can certainly buy them and add them to your soil, and they should do the one-two punch when you have the nematodes and the mites, and you've removed a lot of the larva and the mulch layer, and you got the sticky traps. It should be pretty much eradicated at that point. Um, I haven't had a ton of luck with diatomaceous earth and organics because we keep the mulch layer so moist and diatomaceous earth is not helpful when it's wet. And that's also why the fungus gnat like it because it's wet up there in that mulch layer. So you may want to do some bottom watering and get the top a little bit drier. But um, there's also, if you do some research, there's um, a product called BTI, Bacillus thuringius israelius. And they're in a product called Mosquito Dunks. And it's a common bacteria that they use. And it definitely helps um, destroy the larva and stop that process. So Using one or all of these techniques could, could really help. I also hear about people doing some soil drenches, so I would ask around and talk to other organic farmers and maybe look at other products that exist in your market. Um, but those are all the steps that we take that seem to have the biggest effect. Yeah, fantastic. And for anyone listening in Australia, every one of those things is available, and I've used most of them. They work pretty well. Um, okay. So yep. just um, uh, creating a barrier is a good way. So you'll even notice Nat Nix is a product. It's like a recycled glass. It looks like perlite. And you just put it on top of your soil. I think you could probably just use perlite, but um, oh wow, I would prefer like I said, use compost and all that. So cool, great recommendation. 
So, um, in a previous episode, we had a guest uh, recommend that we all check out Insect Frass, as you mentioned earlier. Now, Insect Frass, I believe it's available in Australia. It should be available most everywhere, but it's pretty new to a yep. lot of people. Um, give us a bit of a rundown on the benefits of Insect Frass. Well, when you, when you look at the manufacturers and what they're advertising, um, a lot of them will key back to a chitin. And chitin is... A material that is in uh, crustacean shells, it's in uh, the um, insects and their exoskeleton, it's also in the cell walls of fungus. And so what what we've learned is that the enzyme that digests chitin is really helpful and it stimulates the plant's SAR, systemic acquired resistance, and kind of like a booster shot gets them on the defense. And besides that, the chitinase can help uh, if it's perpetuated and there's a lot of chitinase, it can help be a deterrent to certain pests. And so um, when we use insect frass, it comes from insects. And not only does it have a kind of like a worm casting-like effect as far as fertilization, it's, a, uh, it's the poop of insects. The benefit here is the insects are all eating plant material. And so it's a really organic process. And usually it's pretty... I guess I wouldn't say really affordable, but as things start to scale up, where we're getting it is from um, mealworm farms and bug farms that are usually meant for feeding reptiles and uh, things like that. And so just like worm farming had this byproduct uh, called worm castings that became popular in gardening, the bug farms are having a byproduct and it's called insect frass. And that is turning out to have you know multiple different benefits. And I think what we're seeing is in any ecosystem, bugs are going to be there. They're going to be eating. They're going to be pooping. We're going to have worms underneath. We're going to have compost from all the leaves. We're now finally mimicking that, putting all of it into our organic soil. And it's like, wow, the whole thing is right here now. And so I think that's where that real extra effect is coming from. Um, but I've heard a lot about frass recently too. A lot of people are starting to use it. So. Awesome. Yeah, I've heard it's a, it's a good sustainable amendment. Um, so- it is very sustainable. So just kind of going back to a point you made a little while ago about the kind of um, the elitivity that exists around organics. Um, how do you think we get around this? Because like for me personally, like I try to be as non-elitist about it as I can at times. But sometimes it's even just like it's hard to get around it. Like I've got some friends who grow synthetically and like I just don't want to smoke synthetic weed. Like that, it's nothing against them. It's, that's just my kind of personal stance. How do you, you know, how do you say to someone, hey, man, I don't want to smoke your weed because it's synthetic without coming across as super elitist or just in general, you know what I mean? I don't think there's a great way to do that. I mean, if you go to a buddy's house and he's going to, you know, microwave some, some canned soup and cook you up a frozen burger patty – and, and look at you as if it's the best thing that they've ever made before. You're not going to want to look at them and say, Fuck, I'm sorry, man, I don't want to eat this. It's shit. But at the same time, <laughs> if you're somebody who has a very specific diet and cares about what you eat, you know all the chemicals that are in that. You know what went into the process. You know it doesn't taste as good. And you're thinking, the fuck? Can't you see what I'm seeing? A McDonald's burger might sell a lot of burgers, but it's not the best burger. I can make a better one, especially if I had my own cow, knew what it ate, processed it myself, built the fire and cooked it myself. And so I think the difference just becomes really when they don't care at all down to personality and it's just better not to try and convince them, better not to have that friction in your relationship and just appreciate them for who they are. And if they start to open up at some point, maybe you can share it. I find the number one way to open them up is to share some of your herb with them and they're going to go, what in the fuck? Like how does that happen? And that might be enough. But, um, But beyond that, I feel like it's just a losing argument. 
So. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So, um, a lot of people like to talk a lot of trash about wood chips in soil mixes. Like, whenever I see a photo and I can visibly see wood chips, I just know there's going to be some comment somewhere about like, "Oh, you got wood chips in your soil." What's your thoughts on wood chips? Are they really the worst thing ever? The only thing I've really read about them is that they can kind of dive the pH a little. No, I, no, wood chips are fantastic, and from uh, like a. If I was to improve a property, putting a mulch layer down of truckloads of wood chips that were from potentially you know down trees that had to be fallen for certain reasons like beetle infestation or they had to they were old and rotting and removed from other people's property chipped up instead of making compost they went to my property phenomenal results I mean so highly fungal really helps build soil fast and that high lignin turns into um, good humic and fulvic as it composts so. I don't think it's a bad thing. Here's where the fear comes from. There's a, uh, I'm going to say it wrong, but there's a process called allelopathy where trees will not want to have other trees competing in their, in their territory. And so they exude and excrete these chemicals um, that will not, it will make it harder for things to grow there. And so the fear has always been that if you use these particular wood chips, especially from a, 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 a green waste yard that has all the different types of trees blended up, you're going to get some allelopathic wood and it's going to ruin your soil. I've only found that to be an issue when it's mixed into the soil in a high ratio as opposed to composted first or just top-dressed. When it's top-dressed, I don't see any issue. It's a perfectly fine mulch. Um, And when it's composted, it's a great material addition to compost that helps provide a low-cost, sustainable source of um, compost. Of course, not deforesting, but using trees that may have been pulled for various reasons. Um, Other than that, I... I guess I haven't heard as much about the wood in your soil or anything. I know that certain places have talked about bad about um, municipal compost facilities that are shredding pallets and then composting that and calling it compost. Then I could see kind of the concern there for the chemicals in the wood and you know all the nails and stuff like that. But um, all in all, if I had to chop a tree down on my property, I think I'd be really excited to use that. In fact, users should list, uh, the listeners should look up a, a process called Hugel culture. It's a permaculture principle. And it's based on burying rotting wood trunks and stalks underground to eliminate watering and to build an ecosystem. And it, it really, really has some power. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> so um, it seems like within the organic movement, there, there's a little bit of an appeal to nature fallacy. And this, this question is going to be a bit extended. But essentially, the whole movement around indigenous microbes now – in Australia, for example, we've got a very specific environment where we have extremely low phosphorus in the soil and the, the microbes have adapted over time. And as a result, um, the native plants really don't actually like to have a lot of phosphorus in the soil. And so essentially, whenever I see people going and trying to you know, um, populate these indigenous microbes, I just think to myself, well, you're going to be adding them to a medium which is high phosphorus and I know that those microbes can't handle high phosphorus so they're just going to get wiped out by the tritch almost instantly in, if I thought about it. Um, do, you, do you think that this you know, indigenous microbes thing is a bit of an appeal to nature fallacy or there is maybe some truth to it and just it works out in Australia's case that it's not going to work too well for you? I don't know. I think the time will tell. You know, We don't know enough at all to tell that and I think that a lot of people are wanting to use uh, purchased microbes or indigenous microbes. And the research is showing that those aren't around months later. But what they are doing is kind of like a, a, a team of soldiers going in and training the locals how to do their job. And so you get some of them die off immediately. Some of them stay and persist. And nature always has 
uh, this ability to have all that diversity. And that's where its benefit is, where we come and slaughter that um, by using synthetics is where we start to have to add back and guess. But like you said, indoors with a uh, soil recipe that's totally different, high phosphorus, um, I, don't, I don't really know the answer. If you're indoors, the indigenous microbes may not be of any benefit other than the fact that you could cultivate them for free. And if they were really good at actually solubizing phosphorus because of what they did for the local plants, you might find benefit in lowering your phosphorus input in your soil recipe. And so knowing that would be beneficial and might have some effect where just throwing it into a high phosphorus recipe, like you said, that might actually hurt it may just be a waste of your time. And so more education, more testing is going to need to be done to say definitively. But I've heard from a number of growers that are using these phosphorus solubizing um, products on a super soil with high phosphorus. They're having a ton of issues where growers that are using a balanced, you know, low phosphorus soil recipe are experiencing really great effects from it. So, um, that's all anecdotal. It's just stuff I'm hearing from people, but it just shows how much more research needs to be done. Every one of these questions is great questions. And, um, I know that nature finds a way. So when I use the mycorrhizae eye, when I try and just create a balanced phosphorus instead of an excess, I have great results. Um, I know like Michael Astera recommends a lot more phosphorus in our soil and certain growers will want that, but I haven't necessarily found the need. And I find that it shuffles that imbalance around to other areas so um, ask me again in a year and I might have a very different answer. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, no worries. So another one which kind of seems like maybe it's, um, I don't know, I'm not going to say a fad, but it kind of seems like splitting hairs to me when we look at the Korean natural farming or the no-till movements in certain regards. Like, it seems like there's all these names and all these kind of ways to individualize your specific style of farming. When in the end, I think yep. we could just use like this broad term of natural or organic or something like that. Um, do you agree with that, that we should stop trying to, you know, split organic into these subdivisions or you think, oh, it's just semantics, it doesn't really matter? I don't know. I think that from uh, just learning about it at all and teaching it, we should, you know, not really categorize into, you know, which one's better. But learning about these nuances has been helpful for me, you know. Um, I think that where it becomes a problem is when their ego gets inserted. So if it's kind of like, oh, I knew about, you know, Fukuoka before you did. I knew about Cho before you did, and ha, I make my own nutrients and you don't, therefore I'm better. Um, that can go. But the different segments to me are like specialization within educational field. And so when you go to school, you can specialize deeper and narrower, narrower within a niche. And I feel like as long as they're all working, we can mine, maybe mine some valuable information from that. And what I mean by that is, for instance, the Korean natural farming's latest extension is Jadam Natural Farming, Cho's son, I believe. And so we start to look at that, and the difference between Cho, Cho is Cho uses a lot of molasses, which is imported, not grown there, and is expensive. Whereas Jadam uses leaf mold harvested with indigenous microorganisms and is going to be fermented on the site where the plants are grown at that temperature. And so to them, it's like, why would we do this different? You're going to import a lot of stuff. But from the outside in, their favorite thing to make that's very important to a lot of these recipes and foliar is called the Jadam wetting agent, which involves bringing in potassium hydroxide from within the farm and making your own soap at a low cost. And so for me, I'm like, well, yucca is easier for me to get. It's a great wetting agent. It's got saponin as a great fungicide. I'm going to use that because it's just as cheap and I don't want to make my own wetting agent. So if we can, instead of learn about, um, I guess embrace our differences and learn why they're there and then each 
person individually figure out whether that should be applied to them or not. It's probably the best way. But because we don't all have unlimited time to research all the methods, we end up just kind of asking. And that's where I think a lot of us get shut down is, you know, you'll ask, oh, is this way better? Of course it is. I've been doing this for 10 years. It's all I think about. This is the only way. Um, <laughs> but most people that are honest will say that they all work it's a matter of where you live, what region, where in the world, what you're trying to do. And we're going to have a different answer for a lot of these situations. Yeah. So um, I guess um, kind of another one that might be a little bit of semantics, but how do you feel about exotic ingredients? You know, um, recently we've seen the rise of, I hope I say it right, the shilajit. Um, yep. How do, how do you feel about these types of ingredients? Do you think on the most part there's probably something that you can – do its job reasonably cheaper or do you think some of these kind of exotic ingredients do have a spot in the garden? Um, yes, because a lot of us are want to experiment at the highest level with all these things. We're going to be reading about all these things that work for human health like Shilajit and you're going to be reading about Ormus and different things that you can make. But without a doubt, I've never found anything that just doubles my yield or just makes everything so incredibly different. A few of them, like you know, good compost, some kelp meal, um, compost tea certainly was one of those. Wow, that really worked. And so there's a few things that just make a, a huge difference. But um, some of these things I'm just not sure are worth the cost. And so just purely looking at them, are they? do they do something? Um, but versus their return on investment, a lot of times don't pan out. Um, you know, you don't see essential oils used on big farms because it's just, you'd have to grow a billion acres of plants just to make the essential oils to turn around and put it on all our crops. But for an indoor gardener, essential oils can work really good. So I guess, I guess there's value, but everybody's going to have to ask, you know, that on their own. And the most value comes when you're really researching this. I find if somebody just gives me something and I try it, for some reason, it's not the same as me reading, romancing, learning about every effect it's going to have and then seeing if I see that. So, um, yeah. Something about that law of attraction, the power of thought. You know, there's some uh, products that'll definitely have that um, fake effect, that placebo effect, and so weeding that out, I think, is important. And a number of products will come back on the market. There's just a cycle that happens, and um, you know, fulvics a lot of times get popular, and then they go out because so many fake fulvic companies come on the market. People realize it doesn't work, and then they go by the wayside, and then. Uh, Real companies stick around and people start using it again and it gets popular and then it goes away. And so um, it's always going to depend on the quality of these inputs as well. A lot of snake oil salesmen will key in on the latest keyword and sell you stuff. So just just do your research if you want to try one of these newer products. Yeah, so just touching on how you said that um, one ingredient you had noticed uh, a big improvement from was like quality compost – um, are you of the opinion that really high quality worm castings, you know, vermicompost is the best compost or do you feel that there's another compost which maybe is a bit better? Um, they're good for different purposes. Worm castings will have the most nutrient density typically. And then here's the, here's the difference. Uh, a thermophilic compost will go to temperature to make it so that it's viable for use. And if it's done over a really long period of time, it'll have really good balance of nutrients and pH and all that. Compost isn't going to have a lot of minerals. It's all organic matter. And so mineralizing that compost is always going to be important. And if you mineralize compost, feed it to worms, add extras like kelp meal and things like that, it's not going to go to temperature again. The worms will work it through bacterial action and fungal action, and it's going to keep a lot of the secondary benefits that might be available in these plants. 
So for people that are looking for the hormones, the metabolites, the secondary you know, properties of compost, worm castings is where it's at. And so that's why everybody uses both. But what we're learning from a scalability perspective is that following these recipes is not affordable and that it would make more sense to make your own castings and use those for side dressing, top dressing, and teas and then focus on your main soil to be built on other materials like compost. Okay, interesting. Yeah, because I was actually going to ask, would you recommend, um, yeah, doing the opposite of what you said, whereby maybe using a slightly reduced quality compost in the bucket, but top dressing with a high quality compost? Because something I'd always heard was that a huge benefit of top dressing with, say, vermicompost was, you know, the the leaching of the microbes down into the root ball. And so that could kind of improve compost down there if it wasn't quite as good. And you say you didn't have the money to buy a lot of worm castings. Yep. And and worms always do it right. People don't. And so if you go to a local spot, they may not have the carbon to nitrogen ratio proper, which means that the off-gassing of methane and nitrogen gases will be high. It's not going to have as much nutrients where when I test castings, it's like really high in nitrogen, really high in potassium, really high in phosphorus. And that's why we're seeing those effects, even if the microbes aren't fully intact and it's a little older. So um, worm castings are significantly more potent and that's why their money is, is – that's why it's more expensive. But con- – Contrary to that, they can also be a little too potent. And so if you base it on a lot of our recipes at 30% compost and you get a really potent vermicompost, you might have some problems of excess nitrogen, excess potassium, excess phosphorus. And we ran into that. The reason why is about 90% of the comp- of the worm castings on the market in the United States, just throwing a number out there, it's got to be upwards of that percentage, are made by Unco. And they're a processor that basically makes a product that's devoid of nutrient. And so you can grow in 100% Unco worm castings. You can't do that with homemade, and I think that's a big difference. So one of the reasons why is if you start feeding a sedged peat in a bucket with a little bit of grain to a worm, that process, the weight of input material is the weight of castings they get out. With our castings, when we have a regular farm doing it, they put about eight pounds of feed in to get two pounds of castings out. Those other six pounds are for the worms, and um, it's just a big difference in nutrient density, and so you have to use a lot of times around that 10 to 15% mark to hit that sweet spot. Yeah. And so um, I guess the question would then be is um, if you're going to make your own worm castings, what would you recommend is the best way to do it? I've read some stuff which says, um, you know, you should use, if you want to go for those really nutrient-dense castings as you spoke about, maybe use a, a lot of manure as your base instead of cocoa. You know, what are your recommendations? Yeah. So if you wanted to make a material that that, that when composted was – uh, very low CEC, very you know not nutrient rich. That actually might serve a purpose as a base, kind of like peat moss, um, and it would certainly be high in bacterial, and it would be a good material to work with. But when you start thinking about making a really nutrient dense top dressing and tea quality vermicompost, we're gonna you know relate that to the quality of our inputs. So the best would be to start with a thermophilic compost as the starting point. It would remove all the seeds and all the problems that happen from just just recycling waste, like throwing your tomatoes right in there, you might have some tomato seeds pop up because it's not going to be, you know, fully composted. So you make a thermophilic compost and you get the carbons and nitrogens and greens. And then from there to make it even better, a lot of people will focus on using really nutrient rich plants to make their compost like nettle and comfrey and all of the plants that are already revered in gardening because they are able to draw nutrients from deep within the soil. And you use those along with some straw or whatever browns you find that are good. 
And you make a, a compost that by itself would be phenomenal. And then you feed that to worms with a few extra benefits like kelp and things after the compost has gone to temperature and cooled back down. Um, that to me makes the most nutrient-dense compost uh, or vermicompost. And uh, the compost that we're – the worm castings we're currently using are from a facility that does use manure and they are incredibly nutrient-dense. So I would agree with you on that. Okay, Awesome. And so just touching on some cover crops, like you just mentioned there with the nettle and the comfrey, do you think that having a cover crop like those or something like clove or just any of these nitrogen-depositing uh, companion plants, do you think that they outweigh the benefits of, say, having a nice big top-dressing layer of compost and, you know, like if you had to pick one or the other, which one would you choose essentially? Uh, from indoor perspective, probably just top-dressing, but... There's a number of benefits. We have a facility that's multiple tens of thousands of square feet indoors. And instead of doing big beds, they ended up doing, I think, 20 or 30-gallon containers on rolling tables. And so for them, the little bit of clover that they're growing in there acts as a binder to the soil and keeps the entire soil mass intact. So when they're hand-watering, it doesn't shift the soil. And so for them, that was really imperative that they had that process. And they feel like it also is feeding those exudes to the soil and keeping the soil alive. And a lot of people will tell you that that's just totally imperative. And I agree, but picking one or the other, I think that you'd have a little more nutrient power command on the spot by just top dressing. Personally, I'll run the top, the living mulch, and then I'll just top dress right over the top and smother it. So you get a little bit of both. Yeah. Um, and then in the field, when we have time as our benefit, we can harvest, we can sow cover crop after harvest, um, let that grow up, and then we can smother that through winter, and then we can till it back under or top dress over it and get all of the benefits from the free nitrogen that's taken out of the air as well as the top dress, where the way most people are using cover crop indoors, it's not really fixing nitrogen and nodules and, and putting it deep into the soil. It's more once that cover crop dies and returns to the soil that it's adding its benefit. So so if people could grow one plant maybe outside or around that's going to help out with the growth of cannabis, what would be the one plant you recommend they grow alongside it, so to speak? Like, So for me, it's aloe vera because it's got a lot of good purposes in my opinion. Yep, aloe vera would probably be the one I'd recommend because um, most of the plants I grow have to have some benefit, whether it's beautiful or whether it produces food or, you know, aloe vera just has a ton of them. If you look it up, it has all the amino acids. It has the, you know, salicylic acid for rooting. It has uh, benefits as far as saponin and wetting agent. You can use it for burns and it's a great plant to grow. It's very easy to grow is the other key point. Uh, you, you know, you almost can't mess it up if you get the right type of aloe. And if it's got a lot of sun, you can water and lots of nutrients. In the winter, you can just almost not water it. It'll stay alive. If you practically kill it, you can bring it back to life. Uh, besides that, comfrey is another really popular one. The problem is comfrey can be invasive and take over. So you've, you know, they've, they found that the balking uh, 4, balking 14 are a very popular cutting of comfrey that uh, doesn't develop seeds. It's sterile. And that one in particular has a good carbon to nitrogen ratio. So when you cut the leaves off and top dress with them or make compost, they, they turn to compost very, very quickly. And they have some secondary benefits that are good to have on the farm too, like uh, the, nick, the nickname for it is knit bone. It helps uh, heal broken bones and you can make um, a poultice with it. And in the soil, um, it has a lot of potassium um, and it'll have you know a, a, a good rounding of other nutrients. So those two, the aloe or the comfrey, would be great to grow and very easy to grow. So, Yeah, fantastic. So, for me, when I found a Coots Mix, and admittedly, it was through your site, um, it was a pretty big game changer for me um, in terms of the results I was getting. It was phenomenal. 
However, as you've kind of alluded to a few times, when I went to upscale this, the worm castings became a bit cost prohibitive. Do you find that there is fairly similar results from using... Because I, I find that you can get pretty high-quality general compost and, and it's pretty good. Do you think that from using, say, a good quality compost as opposed to the castings, you can get a fairly comparable result? Yep, I think so as long as it's good compost. And we've actually switched our recipes to exclude the vermicompost. It was really keeping us... Um, to the point where we had no profit margin, we couldn't, uh, you know, get it to a, a store to resell it because they couldn't afford to ship it and all that. And the castings was the the problem. I mean, it's fifteen to twenty grand just for a truckload of castings, and when you start burning through them, it can cause a really big problem for cash flow. And um, then the inconsistencies that would come from having to source that much when you know people just don't make that much. Where compost they can, and there's a really good reason for composting, and people are already doing it at scale and they understand it better. So when you find compost facilities that have really good compost tests and you can learn to interpret those, find the pH, look at the carbon to nitrogen ratio, look at the salt levels, you can pretty easily make a great soil and then from there, make your own dang castings for free. Put worms right in your soil. They will turn that compost into castings for you while your plant grows. It's like, it's brilliant. And then on top of that, you can take that worm castings out of your bin and top dress. You get all the benefits without all the expense. Or if you really are just starting, you can buy a small amount of local castings and use those for teas and really stretch it. So um, all in all, I'm starting to get off the high horse of castings or bust and start to say that, hey, good compost is probably a lot more important and making your own castings will be the big price difference. So, Yeah. So – if you were going to recommend to, like, say, a good friend um, a, a soil mix and they're, they're just starting out, would you give them Coots Mix or would you give them maybe yep. something else? Like, what would you, your recommendations for someone who's just looking to get into organics? Yep, just Coots Mix or, for instance, if those ingredients might be hard to find and it would keep them from taking action, I would say just mix up a recipe of uh, three parts, one part, you know, peat moss or coconut core or whatever, that type of medium that you have available. Make sure it's good and rinsed and it's a good quality. If peat moss over here, you know, we're not going to rinse it, but with cocoa, that's why I say that. The next part would be your aeration, perlite, pumice, lava rock, something to add some air holding capacity in there. And then uh, the third component would be the compost. And from there, you pretty much have a good soil. Um, but when you're using peat moss, it's a little acidic and the numbers aren't quite right. So we add a little bit more calcium to it via oyster shell flour or gypsum. So I would still recommend those normal numbers. Um, and then from there, if you didn't have like the crustacean meal and the neem and the kelp that is part of the Coots mix, I would say go grab a tomato fertilizer that's organic you like, follow the recipe, put it in your soil and use that as your first grow. I think you'll crush it. From there, you'll experience some benefits by getting some really high quality amendments and starting to learn about each of them individually. But tomatoes are similar, fast growing uh, annual or biennial plant. Um, it's kind of treated as an annual. So um similar nutrient requirements, and I think most people are aware of that. So out here, there's a number of tomato fertilizers you can buy. Problem for me was I'd pick up that box and I'd read cottonseed meal and realize, ugh, that's GMO, number one pesticide spread. Ugh, the next one is there is feather meal, big chicken farms, all GMO corn-fed and you know hormones. And so it, it you find right away that all of the fertilizers are usually just someone's waste sold at a huge profit margin. And that's why we end up going to these specific recipes. But certainly if you're already doing synthetic, going down the street, buying the tomato fertilizer, mixing the three parts together, I think you'll have good success. 
Great. And just specifically, um, I found it almost impossible to find crustacean meal in Australia. Just for that one amendment, what would you recommend as like a good interchangeable? Um, um, we're mainly after the calcium carbonate there. And so it's just a natural source of calcium. If you have oyster shell flour, great, you're done. You don't need the crustacean meal. The one thing that it does bring to the table, though, is a little bit of meat that might have been in there, so a little nitrogen. Um, and I, it might also bring to the table uh, the chitin, which you know we talked about previously that's available in insect frass. And so even then, if you didn't have it, I, I don't think it's totally imperative. And so you could just get away by using a lime which is calcium carbonate. And if you have an agricultural lime, it's going to be um, mostly calcium and about 4% magnesium. If you have a dolomite, it's going to be higher magnesium. But here's the kicker. The magnesium is not the water-soluble part. The calcium is. And so you're mostly going to get calcium from that anyways until a few years down the road. So um, I wouldn't worry terribly about the crustacean meal. That's one of those that's a little more easily replaceable. Um, I would use insect frass as a direct replacement if that's available. So, Yeah. And so, um, for people like the Rev, um, he often advocates that, um, you know, dolomite lime's quite good in your soil mixes. And I remember the first post I ever read on Builder Soil was essentially a link and it was dissecting through the super soil recipe and I was really impressed with it. And the biggest thing I always remember about that article was that you were fairly adamant that you don't really need dolomite in your soil mix and it just forms like these little anaerobic pockets and it's not even really doing what a lot of people think it's doing. Would you mind maybe explaining this a little better and do you still stand by that philosophy of don't really need dolomite? Uh, yeah, I still stand by it. I don't think it's as detrimental as I maybe previously thought when I was getting educated on the subject. I know people that use it and it's not ruining their soil by any means. But, you know, most of those people aren't keeping it around for years at a time. And it may not be hardening up, but the wicking and the moisture holding capacity may not be as good. And it's certainly been proven um, on an agricultural scale. So what I started to do is instead of making up my own opinion and, and just going by what I saw 100%, I started researching and, you know, across the board at the forefront of soil remineralization and soil testing um, application, um, they're not using dolomite anymore. And it is very cheap. You can buy all over the place. But the calcium to magnesium ratio that we're looking for is not present in dolomite. It's a little bit off. And so over time, it will affect itself. Now, when you're just liming peat moss, it's very cheap. It's available and it works. We're keeping our soil. And so in an effort to avoid that, I still hold true that you don't need dolomite. I would rather see magnesium added separately, calcium added separately, and have more control over that. I would rather see oyster shell flour, which is more natural. There's a reason why it's fed to every chicken as a premium source of calcium. Um, and, and then on top of that, I'd also rather see maybe gypsum that brings the sulfur with it that's so much more beneficial. So if that's all you have, you know, looking back on my previous posts, I don't think that I would maybe beat it up as much, but certainly at the if you're going to be the one teaching everybody about building soil, right now that's not the go-to. And I still believe that using an ag, an ag lime, using a oyster shell, using gypsum and a lot of the others is going to be better. Yeah. So we've got some people um, like the Rev who advocate using some of these really long-term amendments like green sand. And as you mentioned, just their dolomite, the magnesium can take years to become available. Do you think that advocating the use of such um, long-lasting or (laughs) slow-release amendments is a good thing? Just because from my experience, as much as we all try to reuse our soil, things often happen and I, I, I can't really guarantee that everyone would have the same soil in three years from now such that they're really getting all the uses out of those long-term amendments. Do you feel the same way or do you think, nah, 
that's the, you should just hang on to your soil. <laughs> well, I think you should hang on to your soil. And if you're one that can plant it that far ahead, that's great. But I don't think any of us really can that accurately. Um, I've had a number of people that grew up in Jersey tell me, man, I wouldn't buy anything from there. It's probably dirty. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that being said, it's mined other places. And so, um, you know, there, there was a big kick and it, it was a fad and there was a huge market that was talking about potassium and it's important and green sand had it and that you should use it. And I'm of a big believer that some of these things that might be a long-term breakdown in a very, very active microbial living soil might actually break down faster. So who knows? Maybe we're going to learn more about that in the future and double back on that. But I don't like to get a rock test that's just potassium or just one direction. And like you said, is proven to take a number of years to break down. I feel like that's a bad use of the space in that container. I would rather add an ingredient that's going to have more power. And so that's just kind of how I look at it. I would rather use basalt. Um, it's got the paramagnetic energy. It's got all of the micronutrients. And um, there's a number of other ways to get potassium, for instance, from compost. And I don't think that we need such a slow-release form. So um, I definitely don't believe in green sand. But there's a number, a number of other ingredients that I'm surprised. Like there's a local buddy of mine that got basalt. Instead of getting the rock dust, he got gravel of basalt, a larger chunk of it. He said after two years it was gone. And he's oh, using wow. a lot of microbes in his soil. And so I'm just – I'm thinking you know, maybe it's not about just the minerals but maybe the coenzyme factor, the energy effect of just having those minerals there and the ability for the microbes to play off that energy. I know if there's a Discovery Channel show you can watch that's about the formulation of the earth and it talks about basalt and how – the first organic substances were created uh, at really high temperatures and it was something to do with the energy of the rock and all the minerals there and there was this amino black substance organic life like created for the first time and you know I don't, obviously that's not uh, something they're teaching in school and it's not like exactly you know this, they're just talking generally but it's still ex- it's exciting enough to consider that yeah. so maybe there's a possibility green sand has some of that benefit but I feel like more more of it was a marketing ploy based on the fact that at that time people knew potassium was important and they had a mind full of it. And so we're, we've moved away from that and I don't see it as popular anymore. Yeah. So just staying on that topic of basalt, um, it's actually one that's a little more trickier to find in Australia as well as like things like glacial rock dust. Um, what would be your recommendation for alternatives to these ones? Is, is regular rock dust a good replacement to glacial rock dust? <laughs> Yeah, do you have granite or what do you have out there that might work? Yeah, like well, we've, we've got rock dust, um, but I've found basalt is a little harder to find and I've never seen glacial rock dust. I just think rock dust would be fine. Um, it's weird. You know, you look at rock dust and all of a sudden you start to see like aluminum and you think, oh my God, I got to stay away from it. But a lot of these alumina silicate, aluminum iron silicates, they're just locked in this complex where most of the micronutrients are the coenzymes that's actually having an effect. And if you read a book that's free... It's available on the internet called Bread from Stones. They started with granite and had a really good effect. And I feel like in the United States, if you're towards the East Coast, probably go granite. If you're in the West Coast, probably volcanic or glacial. And so here in Colorado, we're blessed with the um, where I live down the street. There's a mesa. It's called the Grand Mesa, one of the largest flat top mountains in the United States, maybe even the world. A few hundred lakes are on top of it, and it's completely encapsulated by basalt. So for me, it's just a no-brainer. We just go right there. We get basalt. It's got all the benefits. It's being talked about right now. It's got all the energy. Um, That being said, if I didn't have it and granite was right there, I'd probably use it. So I would look at what's locally available. Um, A lot of times you can go down to a gravel production area and just get some rock dust for free as their waste product. It's the um, 400 mesh. It's like the powder they just can't do anything with. And you can use that as a rock dust. 
if you really wanted to, you could send it off to a lab and get it tested and see if there's anything toxic in it. Um, but for the most part, if you go to remineralize.org, they really just talk about using whatever rock dust is locally available and it having a remineralization effect on the soil. And so um, still trying to learn about that. But for a while, we used the glacial rock dust, and now I'm really sticking with basalt, and it makes a great texture in our soil. So that's that's where I'm at right now. Yeah. And so when you're looking at just a general soil, or maybe more specifically a, a compost, do you think that, like, black is better? Like, that's the aim for a really nice, humic-rich soil? You should be looking to get it nice and dark, or not necessarily? I don't know. It always depends. You know, in rock dust... Um, a lot of times we go there as we look at the Earth's ability to remineralize itself. And in volcanic regions where that's happened through lava, we see a really increase in the nutrient density of crops. And so we, we look at that. And from the lava flow to a, a high canopy rainforest, we find that there's a lot of microbes involved in the beginning processes. And so when we look at compost, now we're not looking at minerals. We're looking at organic matter. And so to get the humix and fulvix, a lot of premium compost, like our Ollie Mountain Fish compost, is broken down with hard wood and stuff that takes years to make, and it does turn dark black. That being said, if you took a manure compost and it was dark black, I'd think that, and it was made in a few months, I'm guessing it got way too hot and it was full of way too many thermophiles and it just turned black. And if you were to take 100% grass clippings from your front yard, and con- from your front yard, it'll turn death black and smell nasty. And that black is not a premium compost, but it certainly turned black. So it depends. I would always be asking how it was made. Yeah. Okay. So, how do you feel about using Bokashi as a soil amendment? Because um, I've seen it come up a lot lately, but to me, it kind of was initially ringing some alarm bells, like the idea of, like, because Bokashi obviously wants an anaerobic environment, but in your soil, you want an aerobic environment. So, how does that kind of work? Are they not working against each other in a way? I don't know. I used to think that they were working against each other. I was scared of it. And then I saw people growing completely anaerobically with great success. And I thought, shit, this nature has more than one way to do things. It's pretty crazy. Um, and then you look at Jadam farming and their key tenet is that if it smells, it doesn't matter. You know, we need to get over that. We used to throw shit and blood and sticky stuff all over our farms and it worked great. You know, um, when you look at um, uh, other cultures too, like some of the Asian cultures farming for 10,000 plus years without having any issues and all of a sudden they adopt Western philosophies and they got major problems. So, um, yeah, well, I, I mean, know. have you ever heard anyone who had looked into or toyed with the idea of creating cannabis from humanure? Yeah, I have, and people have done it. I've even talked to a couple of people that are uh, in the outback there, and they live, and they've had composting toilets, and they're more comfortable with the process, and their diet is good, and they've been growing their own in it. Having that as a day-to-day conversation with customers and talking about peeing for fertilizer and diluting with water, and most of our diets aren't there. I'm not totally comfortable with it. From a permaculture perspective, it makes sense to close the loop, and I think you could successfully do it. I think that the only way I would do that was making a product that was then used and turn into compost and then it grew another crop and then that crop was used to make the compost that I actually used. I would have a couple layers between me and that. Yeah. But when you're looking at Bakashi, there's a couple different methods. So for instance, we talked about off-gassing that happens when composting. If it's done properly, there really shouldn't be a lot, but it does take time. So we're finding in tests that um, people can Bakashi compost significantly faster. So for me, I try not to say one's better than the other. If I'm Bakashi composting, it could be a tool where 
in my kitchen when I used to do it more often, it was because it was winter, it's snowing out, I don't have a thermocompost pile going, and I have some food scraps I want to recycle. So I open the bucket, I put the Bakashi in, and I use it. But most people aren't using the Bakashi compost or the Bakashi um, product as the actual fertilizer. I mean, that could go get buried in your yard or processed through the worms or fed to the compost. We're talking about using the actual Bakashi as a fertilizer, and it does have a pretty good NPK, so it can act as a fertilizer. The indigenous microbes that are, are the microbes that are on it, like the lactobacillus and things, they're actually facultative anaerobes. So they don't have to have an aerobic environment to work. And, um, you know, the lactic acid is certainly being a good decomposer. So uh, adding that in, depending on who you're talking to, if they might be making a soil from scratch and you want to outcompete, a lot of times mixing it, mixing it into a soil could be a good idea. And I've not seen a, a problem from doing it when it's in the proper proportion. I personally don't mix it into my soil though. I would use it only as a top dressing or I would use it for my Bakashi compost. Other people are using it for teas. And so if anything, what's exciting is that people are finding benefit to it and it's working even in the face of the fact that a few years ago I would have said anaerobic is going to kill it all. You just can't do that. And so I'm just enamored that it's like the complete opposite of what we said actually still works. And so I'm just trying to learn from that right now. And what I found is that fermenting some of your own fertilizers works pretty well. And um, Bakashi has a place, but it's not like a make or break must have item in my book. I think that the relationships that I've created with people that like Bakashi keep me talking about it a lot. But other than that, if I absolutely had to have a few things, it would just be some soil, you know, and some compost. I don't think Bakashi would be the number one item on there. Yeah. So if someone was looking to get their own compost pile started, whether it be through Bokashi or other means, would you recommend that – or not recommend, but do you think that you could use Bokashi to kind of kickstart a compost pile? Like my friend's got this big compost pile and it's not that thermophilic, but it is quite anaerobic. Um, and I tell him like you should consider throwing some Bokashi in the middle of that and it might really kickstart things. Do you think that's the case or probably not? I think it probably would, but you know, I don't know if it's just going to be from uh, if you were to just throw some grain in the pile, it might be enough, you know, extra kick and nitrogen or whatever is required from the seeds to kickstart that. You know, if you look, if you go buy a product at the store called Compost Starter, you'll flip open the back and realize it's alfalfa meal, crustacean meal. It's just some, you know, some nitrogen having materials in it, and that helps kickstart the process. Sometimes they'll have a little bacteria in it, and um, what's neat is that there is bacteria in it, and that's a lot of times what's considered a starter. So. I think it'd be a great place to start. And here's the great thing. If it doesn't work, it's not going to hurt anything. Um, that being said, most of the people that are doing thermophilic compost, they're not including Bakashi in that. They're keeping them separate. On my property, I'll dump the Bakashi right in my thermocompost, but I still consider it a thermocompost. I'm not Bakashiing in the process. They're separate from each other. Yeah. And so if someone did want to, say, start their own compost pile, whether it be, you know, quote, cooking their soil, and just for anyone who's not um, aware, I'm pretty sure everyone is, but, you know, whenever, like, someone like Subcool says cooking soil, like, they really just mean composting. Um, yep. So if someone was to start their own compost pile and make either the coots mix or the super soil, how long would you recommend composting it for? Um, and would you recommend turning it regularly? I mix it and plant directly into it. I mean, we're putting very small amounts of inputs, premium compost, where most of our initial nutrients are coming from, peat moss and aeration. There's no reason to cook it. 
when you make a super soil and you add tons of nutrients out of proportion that need to be kind of homogenized is the word I like to use into the mix, it makes a ton of sense to moisten it and to let it sit and to turn it. And the reason why is the inside of the pile is going to get hot and the outside is going to stay cool. So when you turn it, it puts the cool part back into the inside and makes sure that it's all homogenized evenly. And once it cools back down, you know that it's not going to go thermal and burn your plants. And if there was an excess and some nutrients that needed to be released by the bacteria, that process has now happened. Um, when we get above 200 gallons per container, even in a coots mix, I want to let it sit at least a week or two and see what the temperatures look like because even a basic recipe can go thermal if it's in enough volume. That's why making your own compost at home is typically a minimum three by three by three pile. Another reason why Bakashi is popular is because most people don't have enough waste to make a three by three by three pile. And so they end up doing cold composting that takes years or a tumbler and it's not as good as thermocompost. And so then they have seeds sprouting and they have flies in it and larvae and bugs. And so, um, Everybody's going to determine what's most important from them. If you're just growing vegetables out in the field or if you're throwing it on the lawn, it could be cold compost. It could be Bokashi. It could be anything. If it's going in your prized plant that's actual medicine for a disease you're trying to fight in your one indoor grow that you're paying electricity for, you might get a lot more specific about what's going in there. So, so on a question that's maybe a little left of field, have you ever heard from maybe a customer or just friends that um, using certain amendments is able to really alter the properties of the cannabis. And I mean, more so than just say, like, if it was deficient, then then you give it a suitable environment. Obviously, it's going to come out different. But, like, the specific example I've been told of is I know someone and they grow these really skunky strains and they said that when they use more sulfur amendments in their soil, it can really make those skunky smells come out because they're typically characterized by those thiol sulfur groups. Do you think there's any truth in this or maybe it's just a bit anecdotal? No, I think it's totally true and what we need to look at is the building blocks and when we're talking terpenes, terpenoids that have our flavors, we're talking carbon and hydrogen or carbon, hydrogen and oxygen. And you look at what goes into the building blocks of that and you start to find that sulfur is actually a big part of that creation process. And so you go, oh, wow, that makes sense. Okay, it's not just that sulfur is aromatic, but it actually might be a key part of the process of these secondary components that actually provide that smell. And what I've noticed is that that's that taste to smell translation too. And there's two components. Complex organics bring that and the sulfur brings that. And having both, I think, gives them both. So for a while in hydro, if you add a little guano, that's where that smell came from. But I think that's just the organic part. When you add the sulfur, the organics, and all of it, you get that taste to smell translation. And um, I'm a big believer in sulfur as a part of that. In fact, our soil has about twice the recommended sulfur amount. Uh, for two reasons. One, it keeps the nutrients in flow. And the other one is, is really because of that flavor aspect. Fantastic. So another one which is kind of like sulfur where like maybe some people use it, some people don't. Um, how do you feel about biochar? You know, I've got a friend who swears by it, but I've got a lot of other friends who don't even know what it is. What do you think about it? It's in all our soil at 5%. I found enough benefit through researching terra preta and biochar and all of that to find a benefit. And it's really interesting. I've got our worm casting um, producer. They just got a new facility. They've got massive indoor space and they go do a really good job. Um, but one of the things they noticed is that they were doing a lot of farm trials and they had, um, a number of studies. One of them in particular was this guy growing elephant grass and it was like 11 foot tall grass. And I think it, the seeds or something created like biofuel and it was popular for a while to use organic feeds 
or fermented feeds and stuff like that and create biofuel and you get grants for it, whatever. So they hired um, the worm casting producer to come out there and talk to them about increasing production. And one of the things they were looking at was nodules on the root zone and each one could be removed and grow another plant. And no matter what they did, the best they could come up with with all the synthetic fertilizers and nitrates were about four to five nodules per plant. And they uh, invited our worm casting guy out. He put 50% worm castings that he made and 50% biochar, about the size of a rice hull, that kind of texture, 50-50. And he put a cup next to each little planting site, and they were getting 50 to 60 nodules on those plants. It's significant multiple hundred or thousand percent increase. Um, with corn, they did the same thing, a little biochar, little castings, and they were able to get that third or fourth year of corn that really increased a 33% increased yield across that sweet corn that was taken to market at a high dollar price. So uh, the biochar, for some reason, seemed to be a key link in adding that organic matter that couldn't be instantly added to the field, that sequestered carbon. And then the high nitrogen worm castings next to it balanced the two out. And when it was done at planting, it altered the trajectory trajectory enough where by by the time it was yielding there was a big difference here's the problem we're facing our soils are already built have the castings have the compost the cec all the nutrients and now we're going to add biochar and so we won't notice as significant as an impact in a situation like that because it can't impart as much of its luxury on the such a special soil where in a native soil devoid of everything it acts as a little sponge slow slowly releasing the benefits to the plant next to it so um, I believe in biochar, but like squeezing a sponge, if you were to put that in your soil, it can soak up some of the goodies. People are pre-charging their biochar with uh, bacteria and with nitrogen and things. And um, for the cost of it and the fact that it has all that carbon, I see no reason not to do it. I really like using it, but I didn't notice it doubled my yield or anything silly like that. It will hold five times its weight in water. So be careful if you want to use biochar as a aeration amendment it can act as one but it can also hold a lot of water yeah so um so i guess maybe what you the rule of thumb is that like the the better the soil the the less uh, effect it has yeah but here's the other thing too we're looking at water filtering and we're looking at heavy metals we're looking at all these different properties that a soil might take into consideration and alternate uses for these products like pumice is used in beauty products is used in water filters so is biochar so um Adding these things to our filter that could potentially filter out heavy metals or be a part of that complex of increased cation exchange is always a benefit. And so if you're going to add a little bit of clay and a little bit of biochar, I feel like your soil is going to have a higher CEC. And we talked about in the beginning of this that having that CEC higher means you can hold more nutrients, which means you can go longer without having additional inputs, which means that a smaller container of soil should perform better. Yeah, for sure. So recently, we've seen a bit of a movement to replace uh, perlite with some alternative aeration um, amendments, as we've been talking about. Do you think that the uh, the buckwheat hull is a good, suitable replacement for that? I don't know. Um, and I only say that because I bought buckwheat hull. They were available locally as a um, natural alternative to stuffing pillows with. And so that's what they're used for. I bought some. I mixed it in a soil, and I had the worst nitrogen robbing I've ever experienced. Everything was yellow. Couldn't get nitrogen to save my life. And so I, I don't know if that was just my batch. I just never went back to it. I didn't give it a fair shot. And um, I, I think that if it was maybe composted first, it could have an effect. But I'm using rice holes, and those have been sterilized, and they work fantastic. Um, 
the problem that the rice hole industry faced was that on greenhouse and large scale and very small containers, the rice hole company had too high of a percentage of viable rice seed. They germinated, fermented, and caused anaerobic conditions and killed entire greenhouses. And so they had to put conditions in place to make sure they knew that how much seed was viable in it, you know, if it was clean, if it had chemicals on it. And so now a lot of testing is done and we can get great rice holes where um, the other holes we we're talking about, the buckwheat, I don't know if they're going to rob nitrogen and I don't know how they're growing and all that enough to tell you if that's, you know, really going to be the next go-to. So I would just research and see on small scale, mix it up and see how it works for you. Yeah. But I'd be adding nitrogen for sure. So in general – do you want to move away from um, the perlite? I do. I've never used the perlite since I've started build the soil. Um, we use pumice, which looks similar, but it's actually just mined as is. It doesn't have to have energy required into expanding it to look that way. Uh, pumice will actually float in water, but um, it's a lot heavier than perlite. And um, uh, if you're on a farm, you could buy some pumice, make a water filter that would be, you know, uh, at least a little bit better than not. So it has a lot of benefits. Um, and it works really good in our soil. So I like using pumice. We use a mixture of pumice and the rice holes. The rice holes are really high in silica, so they take a while to break down. I think the buckwheat holes would probably break down a lot faster. That's why we use the rice holes, and they also do add the silica. So if you've got those available, I'd look at it. Other than that, I know people that use pea gravel, so I'm sure you could replace it with something. But in a one-gallon container, perlite has some very unique properties that will really be dialed in. And so it may not be a one-to-one replacement. You may have to relearn how to water your soil and how to work with it if you find something that isn't as ideal as pumice or rice holes. Yeah. So how but it can you, be done. Yeah, cool. So how do you feel about um, – people, I keep bringing him up, um, the Rev, you know, and the reason why I bring the Rev up a lot is because he was actually one of the people who initially got me into organics. So, thank you very much for that, the Rev. Um, yep, but me too. He, he, oh, really? Cool. Um, and so, one of the things he advocates really strongly is that you use um, ROed water. Now, for me, I found this to be like a bit of a long-term annoyance because you have to then supplement with your calcium sometimes. Um but I found that my tap water is like, it's got like just the perfect amount of calcium in it. Um, and, but he would say, you know, oh, well, you know, the chlorine in the water is going to be detrimental to the micro life. But I've always thought, well, you know, if I use a little bit of micronutrient to boost those numbers of my microbes, it's kind of countering it out and it's just really easy to just use tap water. Are you of the same mindset or do you think, no, it's really got to be RO? Because, I mean, you know, God bless the Rev. He's very strict on this. You know, he said that, you know, if you can't get RO water, don't bother. And I thought that was a bit of a, you know, maybe there's not so much truth to that. Yeah, I would never use RO water. Um, I grew up using RO water. It was in my house. And um, long story short, I ended up getting involved in this company through a few friends that was a, a short period of my life and I really just used the product, but they had a sales opportunity and they sold a, a product that made alkaline water. And so it caused you to do a ton of research on the properties of water and all this different stuff. And it was called a Kongen Enagic water machine. It was like 9.5 pH water. You could push a button, make 5.5 pH water and it used electricity and some other things to do that. I thought it was really cool. And um, turns out there's some health benefits to the actual antioxidant property of some of that water. But um, when I looked into it, that company called RO Water Dead Water. They said the Japanese referred to it as dead water, completely mineral devoid. You put it in your body, it's actually going to suck stuff out into it instead of the other way around. And it's not found in nature that way. And so I started thinking about it and I since haven't been using RO Water. And the same thing's true in a garden. You find that people have to supplement sometimes with it. It can potentially leach. 
I think if you already were paying for all water and it's the only thing you could use, I would consider using it. Other than that, I would never pay for it because it's a waste. Um, you know, there's no RO system that doesn't waste water. And if you're using all of your wastewater and filtering it back again, you're going to go through those expensive filters fairly quickly. And so how RO water works is it takes all the bad stuff, it puts it in, you know, waste in, in the wastewater and you throw that away. The other water is the good water. So it's kind of splitting the good from the bad. I'd rather just filter it and keep the contaminant. And even above that, if you don't have a great filter, just like you found, chlorine's never hurt my grow. I've used the hose on tons of grows and not caused a detriment. Um, using the mulch layer, having the organic matter in that top that actually hits that chlorine and turns it and breaks it apart and off gases it. You can bubble the water to get the chlorine out. If it has chloramine, it's been proven to bind to organic matter. So some people use like vitamin C or use a little worm castings or whatever they have that's affordable to actually bind to that chloramine and get rid of it. So I wouldn't go waste money on a big RO water thing. I prefer to just use tap water if your water's good. And if it's got a ton of chlorine in it for some reason and you're worried about it, uh, you could put some organic matter in that or bubble it for a day and then use it. And I think you'll have a great results. Yeah. So have you ever looked seriously into aquaponic cannabis and is it something you'd want to pursue more? No, I haven't looked seriously in it enough to really talk intelligently about it. And I probably should do some more research, but I'm just turned off initially by the fact that I need electricity and pumps and containers and I'm going to raise fish in this little pond. And it seems to me like it's more of an idea of how to have more profit on a smaller square foot by raising protein at the same time as plants. To me, that's not my ideal. My ideal is to have the best plant regardless of what happens secondarily to that. And so that's not my main motive. Also speaking with like the local college, they'll come down and I worked with uh, the college in Gunnison with their agricultural department doing some education with some of their students. And they had an aquaponics setup, and I said, what's your favorite part about it? And they said, well, the kids love it. Other than that, I didn't have a huge answer for why it was so important. And so <laughs> some growers have really found great ways to even cultivate cannabis um, in that method as far as aquaponic. But I've not seen it done properly. Usually the nutrients that the cannabis needs are too intense for the fish, and you have to have biofilters and plants growing and all these other things to make it work. So to me, it's the ultimate complication of what could be simple. I can go fish in the lake, I can grow my food in the ground, and I can go spend the rest of my time having fun instead of tinkering with a hybrid combination of the both of them. But I know that there's going to be a couple people that'll do some amazing things with aquaponics in areas where the land is awful. There's no fish to fish and there's going to be a purpose for it and it'll have a place. To me, it's not the ideal. Like we don't live on the moon yet and I don't need to do it that way. So yeah. So this is going to be the one question that's going to be a little bit biased towards synthetics, but here we go. Um, what's the one thing or maybe even a few things you would give to synthetics that they have over organics? Or if if maybe you don't want to concede that, uh, what's the one thing about organics you would change? Well, you know, from a permaculture perspective, one of the things that's unique is we'll come up with like um, there's one – I forget the Metlander – I forget the guy's name. There's a method where you just bring the minerals to your garden and you can produce phenomenal results. And their argument is that if, you know, in times hit, a few of these small bags of mined, you know, synthetic minerals, so to speak, or minerals without the carbon in it, they could be your fastest way to produce on the farm. And so they've kind of got that beat. Um, at, rather than having to constantly, you know, work the farm, have it always there and working so that if shit hits the fan, you can go produce some food. And so they have that little bit of like startup, right? First year, I can just go throw out some hydroponics, be growing and harvest immediately. But if I need to turn an acre of clay soil into good soil, it might take me a while. 
the ultimate benefit is though that the soil is going to be there for you forever and give back and be a lot better investment. And so um, then when you look at permaculture and you start talking about these guys that can dial in nutrition and use the minerals and it's so much better – you start to look at how permaculture can actually create weather. It's just, there's a question of whether the rain came first or the trees came first. And I believe the trees came first and they started to attract the clouds through their atmosphere that they create. And that creates the rain that creates more plants and more of an ecosystem. And so ultimately from permaculture, um, organics is going to be the ultimate and will create ecosystems. But in between there, we're going to have to use all these other systems to help get there. And from managing resources, it's going to be important to move resources from one area to another to start these farms. And that's where some of these synthetic processes can have an advantage. But when you look at the 35-year farm trials, the data is there that organic is going to be the best. And so I think that in the long term, organics will always win. These synthetics have these short-term advantages where I feel like we really got duped. But if we're aware that they are just short-term and have other plans in place, there might be some leverage there. Um, leverage I'm not really willing to play with, but I feel like a lot of people will. Um, interestingly enough, on that 35-year farm report that Rodale does, the least performing corn crop was actually on the conventional no-till. So incorporating both the synthetic and the non was the worst. Kind of, kind of interesting. Mm, yeah. So, I mean, staying on that idea of like how you've got to put the time and the kind of the time investment into organics, how do you feel about the statement slash would you agree with um, organic gardening requires forethought and preparation, however, is multitudes of factor easier, cheaper, and yields a better product? Yep. Yep. And that's the thing. It's the key pieces. It tends to attract an audience that's a little bit more mature because they're considering you know, planning, pre-planning, thinking ahead, how it impacts other things in their lives. Um, and there hasn't been a very profitable system to enable a brand new person to start organically. And so um, it's just faster. Um, so you know, I agree with that. Organic's better, but it just has a little bit more of forethought, pre-planning. And then you know, the other thing that I find a bit a fallacy is that a lot of times people would say, not only that, but if you mess up in organics, there's no way you're going to correct it in time. It's going to take months to turn it around. I have found that if your soil is built right and you have an issue, usually a compost tea or a top dress can turn it around pretty quickly, so long as you've been training that plant properly. Yeah, so that's actually uh, one of the questions I was going to bring up is, People often, one of the, I call it one of the hydro mindsets when you're growing organically is that you see a problem and you want to fix it straight away. Um, yep. As you said, you can fix them fairly quickly, but it's not like like hydro or synthetics where it's just, you know, like overnight fixed. Do you think yeah, that... flush it and fix it. Yeah. Do you think that this is, um, you know, kind of a, a fallacy for people to use this as a negative of organics when really maybe they just need to change their mindset a little to not want this kind of instant gratification of, change, you know, their nitrogen deficiency or whatever? Yeah, and I think that's also fear of the unknown. You know, you have so much control, the steering wheel's in your hand. Um, the problem is, is that uh, we don't require that control. Um, remove the ego. The plants are more intelligent at this. They can tell what they need and how do they need it. So our job is to provide all of that in the necessary proportions and give them the right environment. And so a lot of times we're banging our head against the wall and it's not a nitrogen issue in the soil. It's that your humidity is too low. The plants have been dried and now you're trying to add nitrogen to it. Well, in hydro, the humidity didn't matter. They're sitting in a bed full of water and changing it out might actually fix that. So there's some false benefits there, and they can become your worst enemy in hydro because you do the wrong thing, didn't fix it, killed it. 
organics, it's not going to happen. And so once you realize that you don't need to change anything, as long as you build it right, you're never going to have to interrupt one of these problems. And by doing a little top dressing, you can get weeks ahead of any potential issues. And by using large volumes of soil, you eliminate the problem already. Just flower a plant that's too small for, for its container and it's never going to run out. It's when we're pushing the boundaries, growing the maximum yield and the smallest amount of medium that we're always going to run into problems. Organics is no different. Um, the thing is though is that there's a few tricks that we can use once you get into organics, whether, whether it be an amino acid or like a, a compost tea, a fish fertilizer or a top dress that typically can turn it around. Instead of maybe a couple hours, it might take two or three days. Uh, but the detriment of that negative effect won't be so bad. And so I think that we can still pull through pretty well. Yeah. So how prevalent do you think the propaganda of the hydroponic industry is in our uh, kind of community? Um, I guess when I look at it, you know, the, the thing that I think of is every every breeder that we've ever spoken to, they've uh, expressed a, a preference for organic cannabis over hydroponic. So we're in this situation where like kind of the tops of our industry or, you know, I shouldn't say industry, our field promote and endorse organic cannabis and yet the tops of the industry, the hydroponic industry, you know, obviously do not. How do you think we've gotten to this point where we've got, you know, the leaders saying one thing and the masses doing the opposite? Because we're trying to appeal to the masses. So... If you were to set a demand for a product that doesn't exist, you can't fulfill the need. And so, you know, talking about organics being the best and not having any organic to share with anybody does anybody nobody good. So the money being spent on marketing is going to be for what they can sell, and that's going to be for the hydroponics, the synthetics, and all that. But I've got a number of synthetic customers that call me that run unbelievable warehouses with phenomenal results that are duplicatable, that are crushing it, that are at the peak of their game. They're implementing organics into their hydro recipes to get that best of both worlds and still even then they're saying it's not 100% on point and they still would prefer for their head stash organic soil. To me, that's like a really big compliment because these are people that have seen all of it, seen the big yields, the small yields. They know all the bullshit. They know what's a lie, what's not. They've grown all the different genetics and like you're seeing at the pinnacle of it, they're still saying there's some sort of genesis qua, some preference that is there and they don't know exactly why and – um, I think that the mainstream is starting to understand that and hear about it. And for the first time I'm hearing in hip hop and in music, growing it organic and it better be that organic and as opposed to that hydro. And I'm like, yes, this is pretty cool. It's starting to happen. And as we get that tipping point where, for instance, when I was in college, it was just weed. And I had no clue you could spray stuff on it and get chemicals involved in it and have powdery mildew and bugs. And I probably smoked more synthetic pesticides and all that when I was growing up than I care to admit, but I'm now burdened with that new knowledge and I realize, holy shit, you really can take just a plant that I thought was a plant that was called weed and really ruin it. And um, not only that, but now there's a million flavors and cultivars and genetics and so it just gets more and more exciting. Yeah. So um, how long will it be till we see uh, Builder Soil OG being wrapped about? <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. It's so funny you mentioned that. Um, I've got a friend that uh, is in the hip hop industry. He's done some sno uh, done a song with some big names like Snoop Dogg, and he's got a charity. And a lot of his friends were lost to um, overdoses and drugs, and just living that fast lifestyle. And he's since come to appreciate everybody, and has just a huge heart, a lot of love, and he gives away CBD oil. He grows um, for the medicinal aspects of it, and so we donate to him. And we also sent a whole bunch of soil to him, and. Um, 
we've also got uh, Nick T, who's a famous hash maker out here and in the hip hop world. We just sent a pallet of soil to him. So who knows? Maybe there will be some some hip hop joke about it at some point. But that's certainly not the goal. Our goal <laughs> is to get you know more people learning about organics, experiencing the benefits from it, and realizing they don't have to spend a lot of money or time to get their own grow. And if they want to spend a lot of money and time, they can certainly geek out on it just as hard as hydro. So yeah. And so have you ever considered maybe doing something like an online web series kind of, you know, showing people how to do all the things we're talking about? I have and it just runs into time and problems and um, I've got one going right now. I posted the first post maybe two months ago and I'm about to update it with all that's happened since then and training the plants and picking, sexing the seedlings and doing the transplanting and that'll be finally documented. Last year I tried to do that. My house got burglarized. And the plants ripped a few weeks into flower because I had some plants outdoor. And so these are problems that are real that happen to growers. And I thought it couldn't happen to me. I live in the middle of nowhere. So my doors are unlocked half the time. Didn't have any security system. And now everything's different in my life. And so I got really scared and I didn't want to post the rest of the videos for some of those grows the few months after that. And so now I'm kind of doubling down, circling back and around. And just like build a soil has been from the beginning, it's been, hey, I know you're scared to talk about this with everybody in your family. I know you don't want to just go be public about it. So we'll do that and we'll bear some of that burden in hopes that it can help us all learn a little bit. And so um, it would be very rewarding to have those videos. And so we'll be working on it. And if you guys do something like that, that'd be cool too. I hope more people share their methods. Yeah, for sure. So um, something that's kind of come up as a new craze is the whole fermented plant juice. Do you yeah. think that these products, um, I mean, obviously the fermented plant juice to me seems like a really cheap alternative to some other products and you can, you, know, you can just make it at home really easily. But yeah. on the actual benefit level, um, put aside costs, do you think it outweighs, say, using some coconut water and bakashi? Like I'm a firm believer that coconut water is the bee's knees. Um, what do you think? Um, yes, I actually think there's some benefit there, greater than I thought when I initially got into it. You know, at fermentation, you use very small small parts per million. Botanical teas, you can use 100%. It's mostly water. So, for instance, you know, bubbling some kelp and alfalfa, you could just use it. If you were to ferment, you're going to use, you know, a couple drops per gallon. It's very different. And um, one of the things that we're finding benefit from, now this is anecdotal. I don't have the evidence in front of me. But I tend to trust these resources because one of the unique positions I get put in and build a soil is to talk to a lot of people that are on the ground doing this every day. They're not online. They're not sharing with anybody. They're just doing it. And they're sharing with me some of their results. And I've found that people that have access to massive amounts of testing because they are at a dispensary or whatever, and they're getting everything tested, even for terpenoids, we're finding increases by using some of these fermented plant juices of the um, fruits like papaya and mango and some of that stuff. And they're actually finding some benefit and taste translation to that. And that's exciting to me. Um, so I, I don't know. I know that there's not a downside from it unless you overdo it and it is pretty cheap. I haven't seen that effect though where I see a grower use just peat moss or promix and they make their own nutrient line from fermented extracts actually have success. It just seems to me that it's not balanced enough and it's more of an addition to a balanced system for some extra added effect than it would be to completely be your nutritional source. Yeah. So, the other thing there is the sugars. You know, I'm not a huge believer in like adding sugar to the soil, but um, coconut water is a sugar source. 
molasses is, is a mineral source that has sugar with it too. And, you know, in the right amounts, we're finding that there is some benefit to taste and flavor to having some of these complex sugars that realistically the plant should be, shouldn't be able to uptake. So it's doing something else there. And, um, Obviously, it's not like putting Kool-Aid in the soil. You know, you get that joke, <laughs> put purple Kool-Aid in my hydro and it tastes better. And it's like, that's not how it freaking works, okay? But, but <laughs> something about that sugar, something about the carbs that are there, a little bit of microbe food. And so um, maybe that's what the fermented plant extract is also bringing to the table. But in Cho, when he talks about it in Korean Natural Farming, he says like a pregnant woman starts to crave fermented foods that are high in phosphorus and go that direction when we're starting to flower some of these fermented plant extracts might be able to hit the nail on the head with what we needed in that transitional period because we're not in this big bed of soil that has everything to it and we are limited by being indoors with lights and so i don't know what the benefit is but what i'm hearing is that there is some sort of even on testing data they're finding increased terpene terpene counts by using some of these fpjs or fpes as you'll call them yeah so time will tell, but I think there's going to be some benefit there for sure. Okay, awesome. So what do you think is one of the current um, <coughs> you know, techniques or methods or products that people are using that you don't think is going to stand the test of time? You know, Maybe five years from now, we won't really see a lot of it being used. Huh. You're going to see a million probiotic companies come and go selling some new blend of microbes that's going to be the latest and greatest. And I feel like there'll be a few at the top that are working with major, major agriculture that are really doing research and finding benefit. Um, purple non-sulfur bacteria was that magical one that you see come around. And it's still important, but it's like everybody was talking about it, like every other word for a while. And now you just kind of hear the background as, an, as, as normal knowledge. Um, but it's weird. When you first start talking to growers that are brand new, they all start using Super Thrive for some reason. And those vitamin B1s and some of those fads that kind of happen that come and go. I feel like they're going to revisit us from time to time. Um, so I don't know. I guess I don't have a really good answer for that one. Yeah, no worries. So um, on the Builder Soil site, you've got a little kit um, to kind of revitalize your soil. So my question is, if someone says to me, oh, my soil is depleted, do you think that most of the time they need that kit or there's just something they need to fix and then they'll realize it's all actually still there? They've just maybe got some lockout or something like that. It depends. You know, if they know they've grown in the soil a lot, watered it a lot, it's possibly got leached. I think that kit would probably do really good. But the kit derived from me not having a succinct enough answer for my customers. They kept on saying, don't you just have something I can buy and put it in there? I'm like, fuck, if it only worked that easy, right? So I, I'll do my best, right? And my, my best was looking at a lot of soil tests where they were in smaller containers and they did grow a lot. Now, this is not looking at really no-till in particular. I feel like no-till should maybe be some less inputs and some worms and a little compost, maybe not exactly the kit, because that's more for remending and dumping and tilling and all that. But what we found is that uh, nitrogen was a little low, calcium was a little low. Uh, P and K were mostly fine though. So our, our re-amend kit was adding the gypsum that brought that calcium with the sulfur that would help shuffle the nutrients. It added back the crustacean needum kelp because normally in a no-till, you're advised to put a half cup or a cup of those materials back in anyway since we're harvesting a plant. And most of the time, the grain size of the nutrients we're using are like, uh, for instance, the um, kelp meal that's pretty common is like a number 14 grind and it lasts like five to six months in soil. If it's really microbial active, it might go a little faster. So a lot of that we just add back, kind of guessing. Um, but what we can't guess at, what we benefit from soil tests, 
that I'm hoping to start to add to our customers in our soil is boron, iron, manganese, copper, zinc, things that may not show themselves as important. I mean they are but may not be as drastically important in an indoor grow. When you plant a full season 10-pound plant outdoors, we're starting to see some of the weaknesses in our soil recipes for the first time where boron's just too low. Copper is so low that we're getting powdery mildew in some areas. And so as I learn about this, I want to teach others where maybe just buying that re-amend kit's not enough. You should do a soil test. We should add back all of those things so we have the best chance of success. But most often, just adding a re-amend kit, top dressing with compost is more than enough for you know almost every grower unless they're really pushing the extremes. Yeah. So how would you characterize the difference between, say, um, hybrid soil versus, uh, say, like the coots mix? Would you just say that the hybrid, which has been around for quite a while, um, is more comparable to, say, a super soil mixture? Or you think maybe it's somewhere in between the two of super soil and coots, that is? Um, high bricks soil, are you regarding to that, you know, gardening philosophy of bricks testing and growing for the yeah. bricks? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, I was I just making sure you weren't talking about a brand. Um, yeah, a high bricks methodology is typically going to be lower in potassium, lower in phosphorus, and more on the trace mineral balancing and not really heavily reliant on compost. They find that compost brings way too much potassium and that and causes an imbalance and they're just adamant that you can't have high bricks while involving that. And I just don't find that to be the case with these fast-growing annual plants. I've not found bricks testing to be something that was super informative as far as you know making decisions in the garden, but I'm fully willing to change my opinion on that as I do more research. Certainly higher bricks, a lot of times it does correlate to a you know more nutritional product when it comes to like uh, apples, you want a higher bricks apple or whatever. We're talking about the sugar content. When it comes around to high bricks gardening practices though, I feel like the compost is so important. It's really hard for me to to focus on that. So what I want to look at is not only having the compost, but also having the mineral balancing. And so I think bringing the best of both worlds is going to be important. And I've found with premium compost, it doesn't have to be so imbalanced that the potassium is out of whack. So um, like, like we're finding, there's little jewels in each one of these different methodologies. But I find when you get to the extremist crowd of any of these groups, I, I, I have a little rub, you know? Yeah. So... What's uh, the most wasteful thing that you see organic growers do that you would like them to improve? <laughs> um, I don't know. That's a good question. Um, yeah, I would I'd... say there's a two particular, I guess. It depends on the crowd. A lot of times throwing all their soil away, starting from scratch is pretty wasteful. Um, using, you know, I don't know. Do you have any suggestions on what you think might be a wasteful practice? I can't think of anything. Organics is typically about not being wasteful. You know? Well, I've got a friend and he's of the belief that because cannabis is like a top feeder, that the top soil gets much more depleted than the bottom. So he always throws out the top bit where all the feeder roots have been, you know, like by the end of the grow, it's kind of all locked with roots. He gets rid That's of that and recycles the bottom. Our container is all topsoil. You know, I mean, we're not in nature where you have that different sub level layers of minerals and clays, and then finally the organic matter on the top. We have all high organic matter. Our whole potting soil is the topsoil, and it's all feeder roots in there. We don't have a deep tap root. So I would argue that if you were to test the top and bottom, they'd be pretty much identical, except for in my soil where I'm top dressing a lot and it would be richer on top. So I certainly wouldn't want to throw that portion away. Yeah, so in general, would you um, kind of advise 
top dressing over using uh, juice like ferments because um, you know you can improve that both the humic and the nutritional content of the soil through the top dressing long term. Yeah, yeah, and you also get the benefit where you're giving additional material for the roots to dig into. And I find that roots at their tip where they're sloughing off and where they're getting that actual absorption and exchanging cations, that tip is where the magic happens. And so when you top dress, you get fresh new feeder roots digging into that, adding an explosion of growth along with the nutritional benefits of that top dress. And then the bottom stays where it's a more balanced, not so nutrient rich, and it can get water and moisture and it can have those two zones just like in nature. And so when you do that, you're constantly training these feeder roots where if you're a guy that does no mulch, no top dress, and all of a sudden you notice a deficiency and you go, I got a top dress, you might as well just grab a tea. But if you've been top dressing and mulching the whole time, the second you put that top dress down, there's feeder roots just digging into it in the next day or two. Yeah. And it really has a much faster effect. And so... Um, yeah, I think that's kind of the difference there. Awesome. So for this next little part, um, we'll just go through some nutrients and maybe you could just fire off some answers as to where people might be able to source them from. Okay. So um, obvious ones, nitrogen. Um, coffee. <laughs> it's one a lot of us drink. Um, I think that any green material, any fast-growing weed on your property you can chop down and harvest will have some nitrogen. You could top dress with it. You could feed it to the worm bins, get nitrogen that way. Um, I think nitrogen will be pretty easy. It's the number one limiting factor. So any 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 country that's farming is going to have access to some sort of organic, you know, nitrogen source. You mentioned you use the blood meal. That was what was there. If that's the only source, you might want to con- consider you know continuing to use it. But um, unfortunately for me. I don't know really what your resources out there are. So I'm going to you know, need some guidance from you on that. But nitrogen should be easy. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot of nitrogen options, to be honest. Um, yep. Phosphorus. This is an interesting one for Australia. Because I mentioned earlier, we don't, um, we don't have a lot of phosphorus. Something I didn't mention is that um, the Australian government has actually limited the amount of phosphorus you can have in certain products. So I think it was about a year ago now, Canna had to redesign their whole uh, liquid product because it was deemed to have too high of a phosphorus level. And so that kind of caused a bit of issues because a lot of people had to change their whole feeding regimens and whatnot. But um, I guess at the heart of the question is, yeah, we don't have a lot of available sources of phosphorus. And even guano, as much as you're against it, is not readily available. So what would be kind of the lesser known ways to get it? Well, um, you know, we use fish bone meal, which is a 420-0 NPK kind of thing. Which means that it has some nitrogen, it has a lot of phosphorus though. So the bone is what's, you know, uh, congruent. You know, the bone meal that you're using may not, it's probably bovine. But either way, if you can get some bones, that would be a good source of phosphorus. Yep. And out there, you may have some more grass fed cattle sources. You may have other ways of getting that that's better than what I'm currently getting. And so that might be a great way for you to get your phosphorus. Other than that, uh, chicken manure. Okay. Very good for phosphorus. Alfalfa growers out here, number one limiting factor is phosphorus, and they'll use chicken manure, and it's excellent for that. Uh, the problem is it can be a little hot. So if you compost that chicken manure, maybe a really, really good source of phosphorus that's at least in a, a proportion that probably wouldn't be illegal since it's all natural. And then the other thing to consider is using phosphorus solubilizing microbes. And here's what we had, we had that talk about, indigenous microbes. I'm guessing they're really good at solubilizing phosphorus. And in a low phosphorus soil where you're having trouble buying those amendments, these indigenous microbes might be perfect. And so looking at, you know, Gild Karendang's website, The Unconventional Farmer, or looking at Dr. You know, looking at Cho's natural farming, 
um, using some of those um, uh, the rice boxes to culture your microbes might be a worthwhile venture there. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So, um, and the reason why is phosphorus is pretty immobile, so a lot of it's micro microbial based. Uh, mycorrhizae is going to be another great addition. So. Yeah. So that'll really kind of allow it to get moved into the plant. You reckon? Yep. Yep. I think so. Awesome. So, what about uh, the other big one, potassium? Uh, grow a comfrey plant. You'll have plenty of potassium. I think you guys have comfrey available. Yeah. Um, uh, so that'll be potassium. Kelp would be good for potassium. Um, I think you'll find potassium sources. And so this is what I want to impart more than just talking about the um, ingredients. If someone can have enough comfort researching amendments based on what plants contain, it's fine. I mean, for instance, the guy I read about making world record tomatoes, thousands of pounds of tomatoes on one plant growing in a cage system vertically where he has to get on huge ladders to harvest it. He did so making his own compost and his compost source for nitrogen was the kudzu vine, which was a very fast growing vine that grew there that was almost like taking over. It would grow across a road and it was like it was a it was a problem. Well, he'd chop it up and use it for his compost. And so if you guys can locally find products and just be comfortable using them for the nitrogen, potassium, or phosphorus, I think you'll be fine. It doesn't have to be comfrey. As long as yeah. you find a fast growing weed that's on your property that's known to have potassium, that'd be great. Yeah, well, I mean, do you feel like in some ways we're going through a bit of a, a renaissance in that, you know, go back five years, there weren't that many people who knew that comfrey was a good potassium and nitrogen source. Do you think that as we learn more about these kind of uh, ways to get the, the nutrients from just the plants around us that we'll slowly phase out things like bone meal and eventually one day you'll be making your soil mix from just a mixture of plants? Yes, for sure. I'd love to do that. It's always going to be economies of scale. It's always going to be that invisible guiding hand of profit. And when you look at people that are telling me, hey, man, I got, you know, 300 yards of soil I got to mix. And the only thing my, I'm going to afford is bone meal. Um, you're still going to have that. And so until it becomes more affordable. And so the ways this happened is, for instance, I was thinking about this the other day, computers. It's, like it's got to be a, so expensive to buy the first computer ever, right? at that yeah. market price but it was those early adopters willing to invest money and in tinkering with stuff that wasn't very easy to use that just for some reason they got it it added value to their life they were willing to spend all the money to do it well now decades later all of us who just want to you know watch netflix are benefiting from all of their struggle to spend the money on all this stuff and bring it down to a level where it was produced at a low cost and so the biomass that comfrey can produce on a property is so unbelievable we're finally finding people that are starting to grow it for us, and I'm buying it for way too high of a price and selling it for way too high of a price. So it's not really ready. But once we get you know multiple acreage plots and hundreds of acres and people are harvesting lots of biomass and we can get the cost down, certainly it'll be a very good it'll, – it'll really give a run for um, bone meal. But right now, a lot of these products we're buying as fertilizer. you got to remember, they're a waste product. They're trash. How can you be free? They already have a business that is slaughtering cattle and they're just making extra money selling us the blood. And so to, to go create a business who has to profit by selling the comfrey and growing it and buying the land and all that, they're going to be up against it competing with trash. So, Yeah, so they're up against the, the big companies. Um, yep. So some of the, the um, nutrients that I've found are a little more harder to find in organic are your micronutrients, uh, sorry, your trace elements and Things maybe that aren't trace elements like silica are often hard to come across in the organic setting for a lot of people. 
Um, where do you recommend people get their trace minerals from or things like silica? Well, silica covers most of the w- earth. And even though it's not a you know via- necessary nutrient for plant growth, as far as they say, it's in almost all the plants. They find a way to get it, even though we shouldn't be able to. Um, <laughs> so I think that just some rock dust will be fine. Um, beyond that, you know, there's other products that are that are out there, like the potassium silicates. But those are only approved for organic use as a foliar spray, and so I've been moving away from those. Um, other products will have silica, like the rice holes, and so you can start to find out what in your area might have a silica content and then ferment that or feed it to the soil so when it breaks down, it adds silica. Uh, when it comes to trace minerals, anything from the ocean is going to have all of it. So adding... That's why adding fish to the old pile with the corn and the beans and the in, you know the Native American um, principles, it works. And adding kelp meal works. It has all the trace minerals organically chelated and ready to go. And it can even, you know, kelp grows in a high salt environment, so it doesn't take salt into itself. It's not super, super salty. It will have some to it. But it works. Uh, other than that, rock dust will have all your trace minerals too. And so it needn't be that it's you know too hard to find. What was probably hard to find is a specific like manganese sulfate or copper sulfate. Um, and that being said, a lot of the organic gardeners aren't really using those right now. They're still scared by them. And so um, I'm having to, I'm wanting to create a soil that has some of those in it that's fully minerally balanced for our larger scale customers. I'll probably still keep two soils, one with those in it, and one without. You know. Yeah. So you just kind of uh, spurred on this question. Um, Often, whenever someone looks up a, a kind of a deficiency diagnostic chart, there will be all these different photos of, you know, this is a boron deficiency, this is yep. an iron deficiency. I have, for the life of me, never seen any of those deficiencies in an organic grow. Do you think that getting something like, you know, uh, a zinc deficiency is fairly exclusive to a hydroponic grow and that organic growing tends to just work those kind of finer nutrients out themselves? I thought so, but, um, you know, when we're seeing full season plants grow on 10, 15 pounds, people are experiencing some of these similar results. And so we're really pushing the boundaries. And um, at at an agricultural scale, uh, micronutrient balancing is very important, and they're aware of the downfalls. I guess the way I look at it is, yeah, you can build a house with wood, and you need a ton of wood to do it, but those little tiny nails hold it all together. And so those would be the boron. And so if, if you're a building block and a boron is necessary to make something, you don't have it, it's going to be a problem. Now, nature can diversify. It doesn't put all its eggs in one basket. It has more than one way of doing things. But you're certainly going to put stress on the system once you get past that, once you get to that limiting factor. And so I mentioned earlier one of some of our growers. In fact, there's a thread on ICMAG that I'm involved in right now in the Advancing Ego Agriculture thread where I just posted some of our soil test results under my moniker Mile High Guy. I've not used it in a long time. The reason why is some of the people growing full season were having problems with our soil and other people are having really good success with our soil. And so we're, we're trying to improve. We're trying to find out what's going on. And it looks like the boron, it looks like the copper and some of these things are becoming really, really important when it comes to full season plants and balancing the soil. Because if the calcium's there, but the water has tons of carbonates and it's locking some of the calcium out and boron might help that or whatever the case is, you know, I'm just kind of talking out of my ass now. Um, I know it can be important and I really feel like every detail will be important when we get to that level. So we're looking into all of that, but certainly um, hydroponics has you in control where you have to add all of these at exact proportions, and I don't think we're intelligent enough to know that. So as long as we get it to the point where it's in the soil and it's above the limiting factor, I feel like 
organics is not going to have those issues. It's going to sort it out on its own. It's going to do significantly better. But in hydro, it's very clear. You don't have boron. It's not there. It's not going to get it. You'll have a boron deficiency. Somehow in nature, we're able to overcome that. There's some boron there and it's going to do a little bit, but it's much more apparent in hydro. That's what those photos come from. So, Yeah. So let's talk about some mistakes that um, you know converted growers make when they're transitioning to organics. Um, you know, maybe we'll talk about some um, some likely reasons. Too small as, of a container. Yeah, some likely reasons as to why they're running into problems. So I'll just give you some topics, and you can just let us know what you think. So yeah. if someone's got bugs and they've just converted to organic, we're talking, you know, fungus, gnats, um, you know, annoying bugs, not spider mites. What do you think their problem is? Oh, that's tough to say. Um, the ecosystem's not fully developed. And so in a no-till system that's been going a long time, you'll pull back the mulch and you'll find so much diversity, it's ridiculous. And so what what's more challenging in that system is for any one thing to get out of proportion and scale. And when we have a fresh soil that's really wet on top, we're trying to keep the mulch and top dress and do all these fantastic things we learn about. We're breeding the perfect habitat for fungus gnats. And if they're implemented and you know the ecosystem isn't so developed and things that eat fungus gnats because they haven't been there, we're going to have that problem. And so, like I said, outdoors, and it may not be an issue to have fungus gnats. Indoors in a tent, it's a big problem. They get in your fan and your light. They get in the buds. And so now all of a sudden we can't wait for these predators to come in. So we have to sort of create that ecosystem on our own. And so I'd think a brand new grower, um, number one mistake they're making is – Potentially maybe a little overwatering. Um, maybe there's just up against it. Maybe they had fungus gnat larvae in there. There's nothing they can do. Um, and so um, from there, having a bigger soil, having a fuller ecosystem, having the predator mites, having all of those different variables is, is really going to help that. Um, but it's tough to say exactly what they're doing wrong. Yeah. And so let's just say someone did have some fungus gnats. What would be, and the, the, the new convert to organic, what would be your recommendations for how they handle the pest management, you know, like their IPM? Because this is something I get asked a lot because I'm always trying to convert people over and they usually get fungus gnats. And then my usual answer is get some neem or some predator nematodes. What would be your recommendation yep. as like a first port of call? Yep, that would be my recommendation. And if they've noticed it's because the top is wet and they are mulching and maybe overwatered. As I previously mentioned, just scraping that entire mulch layer off, putting it in a trash bag, getting it out of the house, going and sprinkling down you know, the frass or the neem cake or whatever you've got that's going to help as a preventative, and then covering that with a premium barrier like a compost or a vermicompost that's not you know, infested with larva. And I feel like that should almost wipe it out because it removes most of the larva and it covers it with a drier layer of a material that has a lot of bacteria and benefits. And um, this should be good. But here's where it adds insult to injury. I tell somebody that and they take compost full of fungus gnat larva and pile it on and <laughs> the problem's just getting worse. <laughs> and I've had people that have gotten all the nematodes, all the mites and everything and still had a problem. And it's only in one of their areas, in one of their grow rooms, and they cannot figure it out. And so if, if one thing's proven for sure, it's that farmers are never going to have it 100% easy street. We're going to have to earn a little bit of this. And in nature, when we have you know, 100 acres, there's a certain percentage of crop loss. It's just yeah. a given. Indoors with two plants, we're not going to allow for any of that. <laughs> so it's one of those <laughs> things where um, uh, we're not going to win every single battle. And sometimes having to start over and scrap it and build new soil may be what has to happen to artificially create this monocrop indoors with you know lights but still be organic. <laughs> it's kind of hypocritical. 
And so we're going to have some of these issues that are a byproduct of our own creation. And like Masanobu Fukuoka says, as soon as you prune the first branch on the tree, well, you're in control of it for from then on out. As soon as we put the container indoors and throw the light up, well, we're going to have some of these issues to deal with. And so it becomes more in building your confidence and how little it might affect you or how able you are to get rid of it. And I think that, you know, that's really the main difference maker. Um, I had powdery mildew on an outdoor plant this year in only one area. None of the others had it. Well, I tested a treatment, which is a um, product we carry with peppermint, uh, bor- uh, boron, and uh, some enzymes. It's totally harmless, but I was worried it would taste like peppermint on the buds. And talking to the manufacturer, they didn't feel like it was a high enough percentage to do that. It would be too volatile and would off-gas. So I sprayed the whole plant down three times, and the powdery mildew is completely gone. And so I was willing to gamble a little bit to learn that lesson. And if I have a problem again next year, I guarantee you I'll whoop out that same thing and it'll work. But preventatively, we talked about hydro versus organic before. And a lot of times the difference is like Western medicine treats symptoms by covering them up. A lot of times hydro methods will do the same. Where organically, we're trying to get back to what's causing that problem and fix it. And that would be like I said, maybe the copper was why the plant got yeah. powdery milk whatever but i don't know that i don't pretend to i just know that i'm learning more about it, that you know every day yeah so what would be your advice to um the new convert on how to approach troubleshooting because this is something i find is the biggest issue is the way they try yeah. to solve problems if you start to think about the soil and you say okay the soil was recently made i followed a proven recipe most likely it's not a lack of nutrients but more a lockout and from there, what I'm going to look at is, did I overwater? Did I underwater? And how do I verify that? Well, keeping track of the weight of the container and how heavy it feels at its ultimate moisture content should tell you if it's heavier than that, you've overwatered. If it's much lighter, you're underwatering. And then from there, what affects the moisture uptake is going to be the room. And so one of the things that a lot of growers don't look at, which can be very important with energy-efficient lights in organic soil is the VPD or vapor pressure deficit, which is the relationship of humidity and temperature in the grow room. And so if you've got way too high of a humidity, it creates this pressure where the plants can't drink and they just slow down and they're not growing, even though the light's baking and even though the nutrients are there. And then you have the opposite where you have a 40% grow room humidity and it's at 80 degrees because you're not wanting mold, but certain cultivars are not going to be able to transpire. They will shut down three, three hours into that grow All the nutrients are there, but they're not going to take it up because they're not photosynthesizing. And photosynthesis is so important. That's what we have to look at. If the nutrients are in there, we know we made the soil, then it's looking at environment, looking at watering. And if you go through those every time, oh my God, I got a problem. Well, shit, this is really old soil. It might actually be a lack of nutrients. Well, then I want you to consider that. Look at top dressing or foliar. If you go, oh my God, what's gone? I got a deficiency. It's yellowing. Well, then you just start to think, is it new soil? Yes, it shouldn't be nutrients then. Okay, how's my environment? Oh, shit, my environment's off. Problem solved. Oh, my environment's dialed. My soil's fresh, and that's dialed. What could this possibly be? Well, I'm going to look at moisture. Is it too heavy? Is it overwatered? Is it underwatered? If I'm positive that I'm across the board perfect, the watering's right, the environment's right, I know I made the soil, and I followed all the protocol. Well, if it's every single plant in the grow room, I'm going to go, holy shit, maybe that compost wasn't as good as I thought it was. Or look at some of those variable inputs. If it's only one or two plants, I'm going to say, okay, is this a different genetic? Or if it's not a different genetic, is it potentially in the corner of the grow room where the fan is hitting it? Is it right under the light in the hottest area? And so after I've ruled out all of those basic variables, I'm going to get a friend involved. And I'm like, what the hell am I not seeing that you might you know, be able to see here? Um, it's kind of like proofreading your own report in school. It's just sometimes you just 
skim over the same exact mistakes over and over again. And it could be really simple. Shoot, maybe it's your first time experiencing a really bad russet mite problem and you think it's a nutrient uptake issue. So adding in professional help at some point, even if it's just a friend, can be a big-time help. But um, the main things, environment, watering, how old or how new the soil is, you know, when was the last time I teed your top dress? I think if you answer all those honestly, you'll know if it's a lockout or a deficiency and, you know, how to go forward. So, Yeah, and I think that's kind of funny that you mentioned um, that russet mite thing because anyone who watches – um, a really cool grower on YouTube called Medicropper. He he had a very similar thing happen to him, and it t- it took like months before he realized what happened. Yeah. But I mean, it well, was really really wasn't good that where he even had like new lights, and he thought it was the lights, and it turns out it wasn't that, and it was yeah. He thought it was the nutrients at first, and then he thought it was the lights, and then he thought it was blah blah blah. But yeah, it, and he couldn't. He was just visually looking for the russet mites, and he couldn't see them. And obviously, they're yep. a lot smaller than yeah. the spider mites. And up until that point, everything that was a problem, you could see. And so this is the first time you'd have to scope every week as a part of your IPM to look for things you can't even see as a potential problem. Yeah, that's where it becomes And then we have crazy. people outdoor that get, you know, wilt, some sort of fungus or fusarium problem that is just horrific. And so then we look at micronutrients as potentially the cause of that. Excess phosphorus, not enough micronutrients causing these little festering problems that can become, you know, really good homes for pathogens and so um i think that's probably why australia is monitoring the phosphorus and how it affects the water and how it affects the plants and all these things is they're aware of the larger ecosystem impact that we're starting to learn about when we you know grow in these methods yeah i mean i would love to think the government has that kind of forethought but based on other issues i'm not quite so sure (laughs) but um anyway so last one um, for this section, reusing soil, what would be your advice to the new, so someone's just finished their first organic grow and they've been hearing about reusing their soil. How should they actually do it for their first time? I take the plant and I would, let's say I just harvested and I brought it out of the room. Now I'm left with one container. It's got a stock sticking out of it and I'm ready to go for ease. We'll, we'll just pretend this is a 15 gallon because that's kind of what we recommend as a minimum size for starting. Yep. And um, you'll take that, you'll, you'll, you'll cut the plant down. And from there, there's a couple different questions. Uh, in a no-till in a big bed, one might just plant a clone a foot to the right of that. Well, in a 15-gallon, a foot to the right means you're not in the container anymore. So you're probably going to dig out that stalk and that root ball and put your clone right back in that hole. And when I do that, I'm going to sprinkle mycorrhizae in the hole, put the clone in, once it's in there, I will sprinkle back some nutrients that I know are never going to hurt but could be lacking. And that could be whatever I have, kelp, crustacean, neem, anything well-rounded, the blend of all three. If I just had neem, I would do that. It's a pretty good NPK, well, well-rounded. And I would top dress that and then cover that with a little compost. Um, that's all you have to do. If you really wanted to, you could like put some gypsum in and a few other things and really start thinking about it. But for the most part, if that plant when harvested wasn't completely just drained wasn't like 10 times the size that it should have been in that little container and it wasn't just completely flushed meaning it was just a nice transition good sized plant probably still had some more nutrients in there i would just harvest it immediately plant another one in there sprinkle some nutrients on top cover it with compost and i'm ready to go and i do that all the time if you know we have a reamend kit and some people will use that but if they've got their own organic nutrients at home a lot of times we'll just talk them into doing that um, and so for a 15-gallon container, we know that that's about two cubic feet. And normally our recommendation when building soil is about, I don't know, one and a half to three cups of nutrients at the very most per cubic foot. So in a top dress, 
I would probably never put more than three cups of nutrients on top. You could probably realistically do six without hurting anything, but I would just put a cup of this, cup of that, up to three cups, cover it with compost, and that's how you go. And you'll experience some really good results doing that. If you really want to take it to the next level, you could send some of that soil off for a sample at the soil lab, get a report back and analyze it, and I guarantee you're going to be surprised at how little that report is going to have you add back. Um, the only caveat there is if you grew a really big plant and you really did water a lot, it might be really low in nitrogen and calcium and stuff once you're done. Um, but certainly even those few cups of amendments and compost would probably be enough to get you going on that next cycle. And before flower, you could judge again if you wanted a top dress again. So on that same note, um, like the, the nutrients potentially needing a replacement if they've been leached out, um, do, you, do you find that it's necessary slash advisable for people to water until there is that 10% runoff like what people advise in hydroponics or not necessarily? No, I do no runoff. And the reason why is we don't have salts that we need to exchange and get out. And we're not replacing what nutrients are in there with a new balance. The water is more of just the um, carrying medium. It's just keeping it moist. So I don't do any runoff. Um, If anything, I will notice a little runoff and I'll stop. So I'm not like I'm worried about it. But I like in cocoa, you have to have an exchange. You have to push all the old out, get all the new in. And you need a large amount of runoff to do that properly, which is wasteful. And so... Um, the, the main problem we have is probably the opposite when you're not getting runoff and you're in a big container, making sure that you don't get that bottom of the container just totally soaking wet all the time. Yeah. Okay. So I will alternate between a little light watering on top to a deeper watering, but, but definitely not to runoff. Yeah. Well, I mean, have you ever run a wicking style grow system and how did it go if you have? Yeah. Um, I guess so. I mean, the earth boxes that I currently use and recommend a lot of newer growers to use has a wicking system in it. It's a sub-irrigated planter, holds about a cubic foot and a half of soil on a tray, and below there is two and a half gallons of water. The corners of the plastic rectangular grow box are impressed down into the water, and you pack that soil tight, and that acts as a sponge that wicks the water up to the rest of the soil. Unbelievable results with it. Um, I, I put a clone in there. Put the soil in and then maybe uh, the benefit is you're not top watering so you can actually mound compost and nutrients well above the sides of the container and put the plastic cover back on the top and that keeps the moisture all inside the container constantly wicking and I've found that you can take that earth box that's only about you know 10 gallons of soil and it'll mimic very closely what a 20-30 gallon container of soil can do uh, in, in a geopot. Oh, wow. But then from there, outdoors... I found it better to just use the ground or large volumes of soil, not to build a swimming pool to do a sub-irrigated planter in. And so I'm finding that there's, you know, each one of these is a tool to be used in a certain situation. And um, I'm also seeing permaculture people doing these big wicking beds. And sub-irrigation was a big part of nature with underground currents and water and underground aquifers. And so um, I I don't know. I know that there's definitely benefit to both, like a huger culture also uses some sub-irrigation in the, in the rotting wood. So, Yeah. Okay, so for this final part of the interview, we're just going to go over some questions we had sent in by our listeners. Cool. Um, <coughs> the very first one, this is the only one I'm going to read in the uh, terminology they sent it in. Why you no more ship to Canada? <laughs> oh, man. You mad, bro? Um, <laughs> 
it's funny because it's been a big challenge and we were flying under the radar. We are actively working on switching our Canadian shipping so that we can be back and we had to turn it off the other day because we started just losing hundreds of dollars. And the reason why is that a number of our orders were just sliding through the radar, no problem. But in order to avoid the taxes and tariffs and fees that come with importing to Canada, um, the best way is to use the USPS. And the reason why is they have a standing reciprocating agreement between the United States to work with each other where FedEx and UPS is going to charge us a lot of money and charge you a lot of money without telling us how much. So we have to involve like a specialist and we have to guess at the fees. So you're not surprised. So the only way is USPS. Well, we don't have international tariff codes on all of our items because we manufacture them and don't know what the hell an international tariff code even is. And so all of a sudden in customs, this product that should be charged no taxes is just held up and said, hey, you don't have international tariff code. And we're holding it. And so our customers would order items they needed and they'd get turned around, held in customs. They wouldn't get their money back for 30 to 45 days. We'd ship them more product than an extremely high expense and then it would just fail and we would just be left uh, apologizing to the customer and holding the bag. And so right now we're going through with a team and getting every single international tariff code. And if you're in Canada and you want to order right now, email the order to support at build a soil tell us the items you want we'll look up the tariff codes and we'll use your order as a test and probably even give you a discount to do so so let me know we're working on it right now great i'm sure the uh the fan who sent that in will be very happy um so next question um on your ipm mixture on the site um we've got a listener who wants to use it in late flower but they were wondering does this render the parts of the plant specifically the leaves unusable so for example if they wanted to say use it a few weeks before harvest and then maybe juice those leaves after harvest are they still good to go or you think those leaves are probably no longer edible i think they're probably totally fine um but the only caveat to that is just like produce I'd have to wash the leaves and all that stuff. And yeah. so if I had something that was totally natural sprayed on there and I could actually put it in a salad spinner and soak them and wash them and yeah, great, juice them. It's not a big deal. But, you know, the flowers are where the oil comes in. And so that's where it becomes a little bit more of a sticky situation and people are really scared about it. And the other reason is, you know, juicing, we have our liver, we have our stomach, we have our kidneys, all these things that help us process. When we light it on fire, it's going right into the blood. It's bypassing all of that. And so it becomes very important. And so um, in considering some of that, um, the products that I've felt the most safe with are the Big Time Exterminator and the Tweetment. And those are both enzyme-based. I've also got the owner of Terraganics EM1 says that you could spray EM1 mixed with uh, yucca extract up until you know the last week of harvest or whatever and then wash after and not have any problems. And it's a great fungicide and a great um, – way to outcompete powdery mildew and things like that. So I'm not sure what your exact problem is. The only answer I can give you that's the number one recommended is never, ever spray your flowers with anything. From personal experience, that's not always the case. And if it's for personal use and you're willing to test it out, um, I tried that Tweetment product. I'm guessing you might be able to get an international. I don't, I don't know. But it's an enzyme-based cleaning product that's got really nothing in it but enzymes, water, um, the peppermint oil, and the borax, or the borate, and it works phenomenal and I haven't had any issues. Also, the um, big time exterminator, we've had a number of people do testing and enter contests and never fail due to anything that's in there. But the nature of these tests is they only test for what they're looking for. And so the purist will say that spraying on your flowers could potentially lead to something that's inhaled and we just don't know. And so the only guaranteed way is don't spray. Um, that being said, I think there's a number of things that you can do, yeah. including essential oils. Um, in a small amount, I think it will volatilize and not be part of the final product. Yeah, okay. So, our next listener says, 
Um, I don't live in the USA, but I wanted to make my own fish compost after seeing your video. However, I'm scared of composting meat. Is there any tips? Um, you know, I don't know. I've never done fish compost. And the guys that do the fish compost have a pretty good process for it. They've got huge piles. They put the whole fish in. They've got hardwood and all this other stuff. To me, it sounds pretty straightforward. Just put the fish in there and have at it. Um, but you and I both know that certain issues can arise that you didn't expect or plan for. And so yeah. I would maybe look at making your own fish hydrolysate and you can make your own lactobacillus serum, grind the fish up, blend it. And by the time it has no odor and is back to a stable pH, you have your own fish fertilizer. It has no stabilizing agent in it and it should work really, really well. Um, other than that, I mean, people have buried whole fish right in their planting hole for corn and stuff. So I got to imagine making compost with it wouldn't be too different. Just put it in the pile. I would Google and I would look up maybe some loose percentages on what percent of fish to add. But other than that, it's going to be a part of your carbon to nitrogen ratio. So worst case, if there's no help, I would look up the nitrogen content of average fish per pound. And I would balance that against the standard carbon to nitrogen ratio of compost. And I bet you would work just fine. Okay, awesome. And just as a yeah. bit of a side question... I've read a lot of stuff lately saying that um, you should opt for just in general. Um, I, I know that you just said it, and I'm going to pronounce it wrong, but hydrosylates over emulsions. Do you think that that's yeah, true? Yeah. yeah, 100%. An emulsion is a chemical extraction, and um, a hydrolysate is blended in water. And so a lot of times a hydrolysate is still going to have a stabilizing agent. And the reason why is these fish hydrolysates. Um, the product that we're currently purchasing, um, they're fishing a very deep water fish that's very fatty and bony. And so it's low in heavy metal and it's very well tested. And the reason why they buy it is they're making a glucosamine chondroitin product for the health market. And so they need a bony fish. Well, a bony fatty fish is also great for fertilizer. And so they have a good secondary market for it. Um, but they use uh, citric, I'm sorry, they use phosphoric acid and it's the kind that like makes soda pop, like Coca-Cola has phosphoric acid. Mm -hmm. They use that kind and it stabilize it. And a number of growers are like, hey, phosphoric acid, what the hell? That's not organic. I don't want it in my soil. Well, the amount they use is very small. And as soon as you dilute it, it becomes a non-issue. Kind of like how honey is antibacterial. But if you dilute honey, it immediately grows mold. It's, it's a non-issue once it's diluted. Um, the thing is, though, is it's not the best. And so it, the reason they use it is it makes the P number on their NPK label a lot higher using phosphoric acid. And it is a P source. But the company we're working with, they have an Asian market that once a year gets a citric acid stabilized version, and we're going to try and get that in the next batch. And beyond that, I'm hoping one day in the future they make a lactobacillus version. Okay. And so then fish hydrolysate would be great. It's a waste product. Uh, we need to do something with it, and either composting it or turning it into fertilizer makes a lot of sense. That being said, there's a subset of people that will say any fertilizer like that liquid is feeding the plant, not feeding the soil. And on an agricultural level, they'll say it actually does feed the soil and they can prove it by measuring how much nitrogen is left over after these feedings, even after the crops are harvested. And it seems to be true, but the main source we see for selling right now is the Ingham crowd and a lot of the compost tea brewers that are using fish hydrolysate as a food source for the microbes. And they're using such a small amount that by the time the tea's brewed, there's no fish hydrolysate even left. It just fed the microbes. Yeah. So, um... Just to just to clarify, when you say I'm um, potentially adding some lactobacillus, um, you're that's the same stuff that's in kombucha, right? Yeah. The, the drink, yeah. I uh, know kombucha would be a, a a whole bunch of other different um, consortium. Uh, the, the 
kombucha, the material that makes it is called a SCOBY or a symbiotic colony of bacteria and yeast. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's a lot of research on which specifics. Some people do use kombucha because it's got a very low pH and they can use that for powdery mildew. But um, the lactobacillus is actually, um, you know, a lot of people would be lactose intolerant and that's a sugar that's in milk. And so the lactobacillus is a serum that's made from taking a uh, rice wash water high in carbohydrate and getting all of the indigenous lactobacillus that's in the air in there and then putting that in milk to stifle all the other bacteria and just feed the lactobacillus and it'll turn to whey and curd. The curd is the cheese, the whey is the clear liquid. That is the lactobacillus serum. It's basically a whey protein powder. The liquid version, while it's still alive, it's high in amino acids, high in protein and in the farming world, um, feeding animals with high protein, turning over to agriculture means high nitrogen. Um, and so when you use that lactobacillus, it's a great decomposer. For some reason, it can break down that fish, remove the odor, and keep it stable and lower that pH down to about 3.5 so you don't have to add the phosphoric acid. It's pretty cool. Yeah, that is actually really interesting you mentioned that because um, anyone, if they want to check out my Instagram page, they'll see that I'm, I'm a bit of an avid cheesemaker fan. And um, and so, yeah, I didn't realize until right now I've actually got lactobacillus hanging around all the time when I separate my whey off the top the of top. the curd. And, and indigenous cheese making, a lot of times, for instance, um, everybody's heard of San Francisco sourdough bread. Well, it's called that because the San Francisco bacteria that's in the area is only native to that region and imparts a certain flavor. You can send me your culinarily chef-prepared sourdough starter from from San Francisco, but if I make it at my house by about the second time, it's totally different. And so that's where the indigenous microorganisms come to play. And that's where when we're talking about lactobacillus, it's crazy. But all the protein powders on the market here in the United States, uh, fat-free became a huge thing. And that's when cheese became popular because fat-free milk was being sold. They had to take all the fat off. And all of a sudden, you had grated cheese, cheese slices, government cheese. <laughs> and then from there, you have the, the next waste product, all of the whey from the cheese making that they end up using for the protein powders. And so yeah. – we find the premium protein companies use grass-fed cattle and all that. So at home, if you've got your own goats or if you've got um, you know, some uh, raw, all-natural milk, that would be the best. But certainly um, any milk I think would work. So. Yeah, and that's like kind of an interesting – we're probably going down a bit of a rabbit hole here. But that's a bit of an interesting one, um, the quality of protein. Because, yeah, I read some studies and they say that you know the cheaper the quality of protein you find – the higher the glycine content in it is and yep. glycine's kind of the least useful of all the amino acids. So it's interesting that it does translate the way it does, especially when you mentioned the uh, the grass-fed cattle and then how that translates into protein powder being better quality. Yep. Yeah, there's so many crossovers. I always tell people cannabis is a gateway, a gateway to a healthier lifestyle and realizing, you know, that there's a lot more going on um, than, I, than I knew before, so... Yeah, awesome. So, our next question, um, it's a little bit extended. What's the cheapest way to start an organic cannabis grow? So, this person has said, is it possible for me to veg a plant in a bag of potting mix, just some regular potting mix, and then transplant it into a big pot? The bottom half is compost. The top half is just uh, the same potting mix. Would that work essentially with just water only? So I guess what their question is, is can you grow a nice plant with just a bag of compost and a bag of potting soil? 100%. In fact, I've been challenged before. People said, oh, you love nature so much. Why don't you just throw a seed outside? See what happens. I'm like, shit, I did that. It was one of the best grows I've ever had. Of course, each soil is going to be different and then happened to be an old chicken coop and the soil was pretty good in there. 
Um, the, the challenge I would have to him is the opposite. They'll put the compost on top of the potting soil underneath. That's how nature works. Um, the compost isn't, you know, just underneath. That's where all the minerals are. And so I would do the opposite. And that's why I had a challenge with the super soil. The hot part was on the bottom. And I get it. It's because the roots are eventually going to hit that. But what you don't, what they don't talk about is that the first thing a plant does is search for the walls of its container within the first couple of days. It's sending roots everywhere. So putting it up top would be more where it can balance what to do with those. And certainly, um, just growing with some compost and everything, the number one limiting factor, meaning if your compost isn't balanced, it would be better to have a lot of it so that it could just eat the portion that it needs as opposed to reaching that imbalance sooner. So what we lack in quality, we can make up for in quantity, at least a little bit in organics uh, in the beginning. And that's how cheap it can be. Uh, From there, the cheapest way as far as following all these recipes would be to get the cocoa core, get your own compost, get some sort of aeration, mix it together and plant. That's going to be the cheapest way. Uh, But I've I've even seen people make 50-50 their own homemade compost they just use that and aeration and they plant into it and their plants do great. Fantastic. So, uh, the final question for this interview, I think we've already kind of answered it, but uh, obviously the person didn't know that, uh, submitting it beforehand. Um, can organic growing consistently yield as much as hydro on a small commercial scale with the same or less amount of input? So, I'm assuming this person, uh, they're from the States. I'm assuming that they're wanting to switch over their little home grow that they probably sell for a living. Um, yeah, do you think it can consistently yield as much with the same or less effort slash input? Yeah, and here's here's the question though. Um, I'll, I'll always have hydro growers that are going to tell me they can do better and I'll always have organic growers that can tell me they can do better. And what I pay attention to in particular is the growers that have done both at the pinnacle and they always say that there's always room for improvement. There's ways to get better. But certainly I think one of the benefits is you could probably could force a little more yield out of hydro. It's just going to be the case. And the factor is, is at that point where you push it beyond, almost like steroid usage, is it really healthy? Is it taste just as good? Or are we pushing it beyond the balance? And so I would say that with a quality and perspective, yes, you can hit those yields every time. And when we look at that actual farm trial of agriculture, not horticulture, but you know, large scale, for sure, if you go look at the Rodale farm study, you're going to see that Every year, year in, year out, and over the whole 30 years, organics not only did just as good, but won. And so that is definitely interesting. Um, I feel like, kind of like I mentioned steroids before, you're going to see a dramatic result in the beginning, but down the road, if you're not keeping every else, everything else perfect, you're going to see that it's artificial, it doesn't translate to as much real strength, and that it could be detrimental to your, your health. Same, same thing with using synthetic. A number of countries that adopted synthetic practices are worse off than they were before. And are having super weeds and all sorts of problems and they're doubling down and going back to their old practices and the government's right there behind them. So um, indoors on a facility, um, the main limiting factor is going to be that grower. And uh, that goes for hydro, that goes for you know organics. But here's the other thing to consider. The phantom yield is what I call it. If I can get 10 pounds hydro or 10 pounds organic, there's apples to apples. But what if I only get eight in the organic and 10 in the hydro, but I made twice as much money off the eight than I did the 10? That phantom yield is going to be more important to me, and that's what real investors are looking at. And the way that's done in, let's say, commercial real estate is it's called the cap rate. Yeah, it might be a billion-dollar building, but if you only make 1000 bucks a month, why would you spend so much money? contrary to an area where you could buy a cheaper building and make a lot more money per month. So when we're looking at uh, growing organic versus hydro, keeping quality in perspective, the profits can be there or better. 
And to me, that's what we're talking about when we're talking yield. Otherwise, I can go spend a whole bunch of money and get a lot of yield. It doesn't mean it was efficient. Yeah, for sure. And I, I like to use the, uh, again, the revs analogy of synthetics being like, you know, you're force feeding it. Like, sure, you can get it bigger than it wants to be, but is it the right thing? Yep, is it the right thing? And I guess, you know, you can get a strawberry in the store that's the size of a, you know, a golf, uh, bigger, you know, maybe the size of a tennis ball. It's not going to have as much flavor as that one you find on the forest floor that's the size of a quarter. What we're hoping to do is find a limit at which we can get between there and keep all of the flavor. I mean, can you imagine the translation if we were able to really do this on scale and then take maybe, let's say, a product like wine that has to historically have a drought to have any flavor and actually be able to produce at a higher quantity and keep the flavor? I mean, that could be pretty cool, but there's that limiting factor, yield versus that relationship of that flavor and taste. And there's no way to have all of it at the very top because the biggest producing genetics a lot of times aren't even the ones that you want. So now taking the same genetic with all the flavor and getting the most yield out of that, I think is really the question. So, Yeah, awesome. And so I guess uh, my personal little final question is, do you believe personally that uh, with the cannabis plant, it is kind of that invisible seesaw of, you know, like the yield on the one end or the flavor and potency on the other? Or do you think like, no, you can find a happy medium? Oh, certainly you can find a happy medium. And what's crazy is when you get too narrow in any niche, um, like yield and specific plants, there's going to be people wanting more yield, no matter what. And so at a certain point, you have to ask, is there enough flavor? Is my yield good? And that's going to be genetic based. But like, for instance, squash. Right now, you know, if you grow one squash plant, you can feed five families off the damn thing. It'll have a hundred of them every year. And so you go talk to the squash breeders and what are they trying to do? Get more freaking yield. It's like, I don't need more yield. I want a better tasting one, you know? And so um, that's where we start looking at heirloom seeds and stuff that's whole focus wasn't yield, but flavor and color and beauty and reasons why individual home gardeners kept these things. And that's why we're seeing certain cultivars that don't produce very well being popular in the market and they command a better price because those flavors, tastes, and appearance are there. So um, we'll find a happy medium, but, but it's going to be based on genetics and grow room and environment and really just getting better every year. Awesome. Well, I think that brings us to the end of it. Was there any uh, comments or shout-outs you wanted to make? No, Jay. I guess just keep an open mind. Like you mentioned, get out of that minefield of um, being on the high horse of organics and um, even learn from all the synthetics. And I think that you'll be a well, more well-rounded grower. Um, but, but I really do want to leave people that are on the fence considering organics. It can be easy. You don't have to have all these potential problems. Um, and you can get yield, you can get flavor. And I think that if you're going down to the shop and the only opportunity you have is hydro, it maybe start that way, but reach out, follow the podcast, find some of these resources that are going to be becoming more available in Australia and look at what we're doing over here and take a little time and duplicate it. I think it'll be well worth your time and you're going to be really excited to share the results with your friends. And that's what it's all about. You're like, hey man, look what I did. Look at how amazing this is. And I think that that's, you know, like you mentioned, asking your friends how to convert. And it's, it, there's nothing you can say. You just got to show them. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. So um, thanks so much to Jeremy from Buildersoft for taking the time to sit down with us. Thank but you think- so much. Huge thank you to Jeremy from Buildersoft. Go check out Buildersoft.com. Thanks again, 420 Australia. Forever.